OTB Sports Rugby. 1 to 15, everyone's got a role to play in terms of breaking down the opposition, but it's an enjoyable attack to, to be involved in because we all like to play rugby and get our hands on the ball and stuff like that. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Right, you're very welcome along. It's Thursday morning and this is OTBAM. We're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. You can leave a comment in the YouTube stream where you can uh, tweet us at Off the Ball AM. Shane is here. Good morning, how are things? And Colm is here. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, lads. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I'll take you back to the 24th of January 1999. What's yes. the significance of that date? Manchester United 2 Liverpool 1 in the FA Cup 4th round a last minute Solskjaer come from behind winner now Fred kind of ruined this for me last night by scoring the third in the last kick of the game mm. but there is big pangs of 1998-99 off this season not of course a direct comparison because there's one competition missing mm-hmm. but the spirit of 99 is alive and well because Manchester United's victory last night you feel would not have happened in the David Moyes era the Louis van Hal tenure the Jose Mourinho reign, the Ralph Ragnick little stint, but with, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer himself, of course. But uh, Ten Hag has uh, lifted the spirits of this club because United were very poor in the first half. Roy Keane laid into them at half time. He said he was angry, Stewie Burns style. Second half, different side. Now, a bit worrying that they had to bring on Casemiro and the troops, Lissandro Martinez, Marcus Rashford, because the replacements did not play too well. However, mm. United got the job done and quite comfortably in the end. A bit of West Ham capitulation, but the United spirit alive and well. And I couldn't help but compare it to that wonderful season. Oh, the non-United fans the are going to love that. Century. They're going to love it's that. It's not a fan take; it's just a take. I was uh, I was put in mind of Federico Makeda. Is is Garnacho the new Makeda? Will oh, he no. go on to have as great a career as as Makeda? That's what I was thinking of when he curled the ball in last night. A bit like the game, not a million miles away, slightly different. From the goal against Villa that time. He's done it against Fulham already Similar this season. Standard. Last minute. Kane scored a couple of other goals, didn't he? Ah, Two. Sunderland and Chelsea right after that Aston Villa game. And that was the end of uh, Federico. No, I, I hope that was just in gesture this mm. early morning because Alejandro Garnacho is a seriously good player. Because um, yours, where you're comparing them with the title winning, treble winning, Correct. Champions League winning side, is not in jest. You're like uh, making a I serious said, comparison. If you were between listening, the I did. I said you said there's said, a competition missing, but the league isn't missing. No, so, no, the league is. Uh, the league. I mean, the league is not beyond the. Whatever about the Evan Ferguson hype train <laughs> being run away? It's not a hype train. The, just, the Manchester United hype train. It turns out it's not a hype train. Is, I'm, is I'm is objectively analysing what happened. Trente du grand vitesse. They were playing very poorly. The manager rectified that with substitutions. Now and leaving Southampton, they were far better. Teams heading, get giddy at Old Trafford, apparently. Heading for Mars. Yeah, that's you where we're at, headed. If you actually did look at that 98-99 season, well, I'm just United trying to look it up. I'm trying to look up the league. What the biggest? I think it was. I think were United, they 11 points behind at some stage? Because they're 11 points behind after Arsenal last night. Um, well, they were 12 points behind in 1995-96. Yeah, but this is 1995-96. That was Newcastle. That was different. Yes, but that was just an example at the top of my head. As okay. you've thrown that to me because I haven't looked. However. 
Um, the, I think that season that United won the league with only 79 points it was something very low yeah, you're right, yeah. You're right. I mean, that was, United were poor for large stretches of that season the 95 uh, the 99 99 yeah, season yeah. I think, uh, it says here Aston Villa were ahead at one point so I mean come on it wasn't that serious league table <laughs> well I mean uh, it was there to be contended like every season and they contended it and they won it and I feel that this side is doing the same thing what about Vagorst what about the big man he played well he played very well yeah no goal no goal again but um or is there a question very well this morning in the, in the he didn't, before? He, he didn't play very well. I think he played he's, very well. He's grand. He's not as shit as everybody thought he was going to be. And that's like a, a relatively important victory. A minor victory for the whole thing here. Like Heavily a, involved in a the A non-scoring goals. striker is, is not really a great thing to have. Do you know what an issue is, though? United, grand. United don't get balls into the box. Do you know that like the, the, those defenders last night? Like Dallow, Malassia... Like and and that's one thing I would say about Garnacho and Anthony maybe as well to their detriment is they don't get enough quality balls out of the box. You're speaking of 90, that 1990 team column like Beckham and Giggs were just whipping balls onto a sixpence into the box constantly for for strikers to finish it off. Teddy Sheringham scored like five goals that season, but uh, a big one was uh, five. The big one he scored it? very few goals that season. Um, very few. FA Cup final and Champions League final though. Um, Jen, you were like three, so like you know, we we do we definitely do take your view of the ninety eight ninety nine season. That's a, a bit like that's one of my first memories. Um, Jerry, you were castigating a striker who doesn't score goals, and then I thought to myself, Dennis Burkamp, how many did he score? The most goals that Dennis Burkamp scored in a season in the Premier League for Arsenal was sixteen. Are you comparing Vout Veghorst to Dennis Burkamp? I'm just saying there are ways to be impactful. In what a positive strain way of striker. madness is I it not. that you are? You're in trouble um, now, Colin. You're, I'm not backing no, you in this one, unfortunately. Simple, it's not a direct comparison. It is Look, a direct comparison. Look, I need room for nuance. You're, not everything is okay, uh, sensational. Okay, so Veghorst is grand. I'm, and I'm not being... You, you're the one who said it was really good. Like Really he, good. He's a short-term solution. His, his attitude is brilliant. His I'm attitude saying, is uh, brilliant. I am not for one moment saying he's in the league of Burkamp. I mean, Burkamp is the ultimate example you of You literally the, just compared him to Burkamp. I said an example. You were searching around for examples and you an went, example. oh, I, I got... Do you know who's as good as Burkamp? One of the best... Burkamp. One of the best ever signings. Absolutely. Do you know who's as good Burkamp as Burkamp? He score many goals, but he was hugely important to Arsenal. Sorry, I Shane. don't know how we Go get ahead. into it. I get ourselves into these problems. Evan Ferguson's as good as Burkamp, isn't he? No. Um, a bit of nuance, please. Can we just have a football debate? Can we just have a football debate? Football debate. Football Without discussion. turning on each other. Yeah. Can we just talk about the game? Okay. Veghorst is grand, right? He is grand. There's loads of other really good things that are happening yeah. in Manchester United at the moment that you should be focused on. The, the notion, like, he is he's literally just a stopgap. And Correct. more than likely he'll be gone in the summer. Harry Kane will be in. And he'll find his level at some team that is competing either in that gelatinous loop between maybe might qualify for the Europa League or might get relegated. That's where Veghorst is. And he's been elevated by the play of some much better players at the moment. The, the team is irresistible in terms of their confidence because they've now got something to back up all of the stuff that the manager's been telling them from start to finish. But you can't be telling me about Veghorst is Dennis Burkamp or is, anywhere, or is good. I didn't. He's grand. I was using an example of a striker who grand. was very good who didn't score many goals. Sure, you might remember it was only a few weeks ago I said to yourself and Clive Allen I'm not sure about Veghorst at Manchester United. It doesn't seem to work. I said that myself. Mm. And I'm, that's what I'm saying. He You're eating humble well, pie for breakfast. Very well outside. It's, what's funny is perception is everything. Three years ago Manchester United signed a very similar player in a very similar type of role and that was Odie and Agallo. Oh, yeah. Remember that? In the January transfer window. And it was seen as panic uh, by the club. And it's funny because it was the same time in the window that Eric Hag signed Veghorst. And that was kind of seen as well. It's an additional option. Perception is everything because he bought himself the time 
to actually be perceived better if a manager, than Solskjaer was. He's created enough. Um, United, United fans trust him. So Vekors comes in and you're like, United, United fans are like, you know what? I'm going to believe what you're doing here. Apparently, he said after the match last night, he spoke to Harry Maguire recently and showed him a few videos as to how to be even better in possession. So I love, I love this idea of Ten Hag sitting down with, with Harry and, and going, Harry, see this? This this is how you actually play football. So Yeah. he's. Um, it was notable that um, they didn't play very well in the first half and Maguire started. Yeah, and things kind of, <laughs> they had to take <laughs> on the cavalry, didn't they? Uh, now, ultimately, it was Garnacho who, who did the business and Pastor Fred. The main man, the the man who is going to be a cult hero at Old Trafford. There is like, I have a jersey at home with Kanchelskis on the back. Mm. Pe- kids will have jerseys in twenty thirty years with Fred seventeen on the back. You've you've heard it here, one hundred percent cult hero. Like Fred is, Fred's ridiculous. Comes off the bench, nods his head in the sideline. Yep, chooses gum. He knows what he's going to do, and he's like a little Rottweiler. What then? I called him a mosquito last week. He said he just that's his job. He will literally just swarm around people. And I think he's been buoyed by the addition of Casemiro. For sure. In every sense of the word, I think Casemiro is... He's, he seems to have lifted his confidence. Oh, I, I feel like Casemiro's in his ear telling him, you know, you're a good player, you're a very good player. I, I think that's what he needs. When he arrived, wasn't he uh, actually more of a forward line yes, midfielder? Attacking, sort an, of an eight midfielder. as opposed to a six, and then they turned him into a, a second six alongside mediocrity. So, like, look... Uh, you know, it was a mediocre signing at too high a price at the time for a player they didn't know what to do with, who they've now got a manager who's come in and said, OK, you're going to do this for me and that's all you're going to do for me. And, and then suddenly uh, with good quality direction. We're, we're missing uh, the fact that Arsenal are top of the table. Yeah. That they were absolutely rampant last night in one of those tricky fixtures against a Sean Dyche side. Arsenal not like it up them. They're going to be able to manufacture some chances from set pieces. It didn't happen. The Arsenal blip is officially over. Mm. They're in excellent form at the moment. And that's the main story coming out of last night. Just because you two watch Man United and are like, oh, this is Fergie time. Yes, we're back. The real story is that Arsenal are not going to do an Aston Villa or whoever else was. I can't even remember who else was at the top of the table in 98-99. Where Arsenal competed for that league title. It was a back and forth between Arsenal and United. Well, the reason we started with United because it was televised. These games, it's really hard yeah. to watch these Premier yeah, League games. Uh, you started because you were, you're biased in favour of Manchester United, and if we could do two and a half hours of Manchester United coverage every day, you would do it. Well, I suggest you look at the live comments and see where the interest is. Now, some of that might be sarcastic interest, and I'm sure it is. Mm. However, it is where to start. But Arsenal, five points clear at this stage of the season. I did not think that was going to be the case. I thought, just before the World Cup, this is good form by Mikel Arteta. He's bringing them along very nicely. I do think he's about two or three years ahead of the project that he would have in mind. Mm. I think they've been absolutely phenomenal this season. You look at Bakaya Saka, what a vital player. And if he doesn't sign that new contract, they'll be a bit worried. Yeah, he will. It's on the table for that's them. That's a title win. But that squad, finish man. last night, that swivel and, oh. and smash into the roof of the net, that's a player playing it utmost confidence but I don't think it's a tight winning squad just yet I think that like they actually need several other players but they might be able to pull a Leicester on it mm. and phew, yeah mm. it was like it was a rocket it was shit it was a and rocket it was rocket. worked through SpaceX rocket launched last night by the way to space the, with a few the, astronauts yeah. four astronauts on board just class to, yeah um, do you think that Arsenal are going to win the league is that the first time they've had astronauts on board uh, no they've, they've done it before so Elon Musk is He's, he's sending them up there, getting a lot of money for it as well. Could he make the old Twitter work? Like, uh, could he? Could he? Can he? Can he multitask there? I've had, to, I've had to mute Elon Perry long because I don't follow him anymore. Would but it be all right if yeah. maybe we could get the the old Twitter back yeah. working? Give us the old one back, please, Elon. If you're listening, if you're watching this morning, I'm sure he is. Well, don't worry, someone someone will report you. Yeah, exactly. His could name be on his timeline. That uh, could be. Yeah. Um, Zinchenko brilliant last night and the worry is that it all came down that left hand side and Seamus Coleman is down that right hand side for Everton he was taken off after an hour yeah, yeah. 
I'd, uh, look, we, you can't really be too harsh on Coleman. He's been he's been very good of late. Um, and speaking of judging pe- uh, people too soon, Darwin Nunez. Ah, uh, yeah. I- we judged him. He said he's a second season player, and he was excellent. And you know, involved in a lot of things that were good about Liverpool last night. So I think um, he, he got a hard time from the media. And we needed Liverpool to win. We needed Liverpool to start putting a bit of pressure on in the race for fourth. The race for fourth is going to be really interesting. Now Manchester United do have these cup distractions. Mm. Are they going to be one of those teams that are seasoned by victories like last night? Is that the type of thing that allows them to catapult forward in the league? Or is it like competing on too many fronts because the squad's not ready for it? And Newcastle are out of the FA Cup, of course, as well. So they have the freedom to, to attack it. Spurs out of the FA Cup, although they have, they have European football. If they can get past Dortmund in, the, in their second leg. It, that top four battle is going to be fascinating. Um, Liverpool now, what is it, 10 points out of the possible 12? They're four unbeaten, four clean sheets, I think, as well. Yeah, six points off top four. Yeah, yeah. They're coming good. They need, to, game in hand. they need to hammer it home on Sunday now at Anfield against Manchester United. If they can get a result there, mm. they'd probably take a draw. Mm. Uh, that might sound a strange thing to say, uh, given it's at Anfield, but I think given United's form, Liverpool would take your arm off for a draw there. I think Nunes... Uh, I think he's a fine player. I think the thing for Nunes is he had his nadir so early on, which was the Crystal Palace game at Anfield right at the start of the season when he got sent off. Yeah, yeah. And the, the Liverpool fans agreed with the decision, basically, in, in the large. I remember, I think we did a piece the following morning with Gareth Roberts and mm. there was no excusing it. And then he also seemed a bit erratic and his finishing is still a, a bit so-so. But technically, I think Nunes is a really good player. Like uh, Paul Tierney had a mare last night. He, he uh, The referee, he disallowed the Nunes goal in the first half. But you could Nelson Semedo pushes Jota into Max Kilman, mm. and it's clearly not. It's clearly not Jota's fault. He ends up fouling. I think it is Kilman, but like he was forced to foul him by being pushed essentially. So I'm pretty glad Wolves got beaten. I have to say because Nathan Collins isn't in the team at the moment, and uh, them conceding goals and not being great at the back is is good for us because Nathan needs to get back in that team and play a bit of football before going up against Mbappe. Mm, I, I have a soft spot for Wolves now after visiting Molyneux last week. The only bright spark about Wolverhampton. So they, the, the snooker was on in Molyneux? Well, uh, sorry, no, no, it was on in the Aldersley Leisure Centre, but right. we, we, we went for dinner. We were staying very close. In, in I'm not going to say the name of the mo- of the hotel, but it was... Um, a flea pit. As close to purgatory as you could possibly get on like planet. Like the Monaghan bus station. Like the Monaghan town bus station, which, right. which I'm t- led to believe has gone under, undergone some improvements, so apologies to, to the staff. You could, um, I mean, you could help people avoid it in future. If you wanted to, like you could do a public service here by saying, "Don't don't stay in this hotel." True, yeah. Uh, it's called the Red Wings Hotel. <laughs> okay, it's in Wolverhampton. <laughs> right, don't go there. Go, you um, can go there for a match because it's very handy for Molyneux, so it's it's close by. For one night, it, it'd be fine. But Fabinho, uh, what was Fabinho doing in that challenge? He's like, I oh, and he started complaining. He thought it should have been a yellow for for the Wolves player. Becoming his calling card, isn't yeah, it? Filthy, yeah. shocking challenges. Filthy. First, he tries to target our own Evan Ferguson, um, and then he he tries to do a Wolves player last night. Um, but yeah, Mo Salah smiling, Jota brilliant, yeah. Simicass very good. So Liverpool are feeling themselves as well at the moment. Good win. Well, they have they have genuine strength and depth now. That players are starting to come back from injury and um, Luis Diaz, of course, has to come back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Forget about Diaz and his brilliance, but you can't see a world. Maybe Bobby Dwyer might disagree or John Duggan later on in the show where Tottenham actually do maintain that fourth spot because there is a kind of it feels like a lack of commitment to the whole season with with everything that's going on there and. Um, I can't see a world where Liverpool don't finish in the top four with 14 games to go for them this season. Uh, but the rest of it is going to get very interesting because Newcastle have really fallen away. And yeah. not just that League Cup final performance, but before that, they've only won one league game in 2023. Uh, then you're 
really thinking it's just the order of the top four. And then you can't take your eyes off Arsenal. Like yeah. they've won two more games in Manchester City and they've won, they've lost one fewer with 13 games to go. We're in the business end of the season here. Five points clear. And at the same time, and this is not trolling, I just can't see Manchester City not winning the league. But maybe I'm just used to it because they've won so many stop? recently. No, I, Arsenal. I, don't, I just don't know if Arsenal can maintain it. Of course they can. They've already proven it. They have absolutely proven it all the way through the season so far. But in the absolute final stretch, you remember it was only last uh, May when they, they lost the North London Derby and then they went to St James's Park and got comfortably beaten by a Newcastle in its infancy in this new era and uh, Granit Xhaka came out afterwards and lamented the Arsenal attitude now it's improved immeasurably this season Martin Odegaard has had a big part to play in that as the captain but I wonder is like is there a mental capitulation ahead of Arsenal no. or have they learned from last season it could be one for City mistakes? City haven't been perfect they've been far from perfect absolutely not They've they really haven't they have another stinker in them I'd say another. we get they have the muscle memory to know how to win titles. Yeah, but then you look at the likes of Rico Lewis, who's in the team constantly. He doesn't have that much experience of these. Of well, these he has things. experience around him. Yeah, he does, of course. But like Arsenal have title winning experience, and like in in Arteta for a start. Um, I mean, yeah, it's not it's not quite the same. He wasn't. No, the, I know. He wasn't the big dog. I, I think Arsenal have proven time and time again. And Martinelli's coming good. You said Odegaard, Saka, uh, Trossard, brilliant as well. What an addition he's been. Jorginho and Partey in midfield. They have got options. The this good, Arsenal team won't be far away. The good thing, if you look at their fixtures, Arsenal coming up. So they have Sporting in the Europa League uh, next week. But after that, then they're away to Fulham. Not bad in Craven College, Fulham, but Arsenal should win that. Then they have the return match to Sporting. At home to Crystal Palace, that should be three points. At home to Leeds United, another three points. 9th of April, lads, Anfield. Mm. So that'll be interesting. After that, then they're away that, to West Ham, home to Southampton. That Anfield game is far away, you know? Like, that's yeah, a full that's month. That's a month. That's and a, yeah. you, you're feeling very confident about life if you're still uh, in the situation they're in at the moment. Let's get to some of your comments. I might be wrong, but didn't Manchester United come from behind almost every other week under Ole, says Super Ken 354. I mean, there was certainly a cavalier attitude to uh, game management that did involve them going behind a lot. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that was, that was exciting to watch uh, Manchester United in that era. Noel Cahill, United talk again. Jesus Christ. But that's your comment every day, Noel. Yeah, like, come on. They did play last night. So, while I generally agree with you about uh, the two lads and their bandwagon... Boy, you cried wolf, Noel. Come bandwagon. on. Come on, you can't do it every day. Someone turned Colin's mic off, says uh, Cormac McSally. <laughs> Uh, and then someone was quoting me from yesterday Michael John Harris Ger on today's United Hype but also sure isn't that what football's for losing the run of yourself Ger Gilroy yesterday OTA. thank you for that comment absolute fact what yeah, do you but, say to that Ger but, well, I say that Wout Veghorst uh, aka Dennis Burkamp, yeah, that's the bit where you're like no stop, Wout Veghorst aka Evan Ferguson stop back stop just have a little bit of comparative analysis uh, John did say yesterday Tottenham were going to win the FA Cup so. he did so we were to talk to him about that a little bit later on yeah so that was unfortunate for, for him um, oh, this, is, this is it Shane Corcoran says vowed workhorse that's it that's very good yes that's very Game very good yeah 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 if he, if he gets to go with Anfield on Sunday all of a sudden you're welcome back any day Shane Corcoran <laughs> That's, that's, the that, that's what we're looking for, right? Yeah. Not this, not this stuff. That's no, what we're looking for. There, level Shane. to the comments. Dennis Bergkamp, Vav Verkhorst, good man. Oh yeah. Uh, the Liverpool chat is it's getting boring. Says it. Rich Ralph. Why? Oh, like what's uh, getting boring? More Liverpool chat. Darwin Nunez needs more coverage. Says Andy Jennings. Again, I suspect he's being um, sarcastic. Can't keep everyone happy, can you? Yeah, my sincerity amateur is uh, alive and well here because I'm, I'm trying to decipher who really means what they say. Can everyone clarify in the comments if yeah, they're genuine like, comments or not? Because we will read them out in the tone that we perceive. Like, should we have talked for more for longer there about Everton? Should we have talked for longer there about Spurs? Like, we're not going to keep everyone happy. Everyone wants their own club to be discussed uh, perpetually. And that's just not the way the world works. Everyone thinks they have the prettiest wife at home. That's true. 
It's true. Arsene Wenger's best ever quote. It's a great one. It's uh, 7.50 this morning. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock on OTB AM. Daniel Story's going to join us at 8 o'clock to talk to us about Manchester United uh, and specifically about Casemiro. Morris Brosnan's going to join us at 8.20 to look at Division 2, which is genuinely Hell's Kitchen at the moment, especially if you're a fan of one of those teams who's staring down the barrel of the Talchon Cup. Virtual Insanity at 8.40 is coming your way with uh, John Duggan. We may also talk about Spurs. Uh, Vinnie Perth's going to join us uh, for a new regular League of Ireland slot at 8.50. Uh, Fergus Dow is going to talk to us about the Debenham Strikers it's tangentially linked to sports so get your complaints in now stick to sport blah 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 screw you I cycle past the uh, women picketing outside Debenhams every day during Covid and they're absolute legends and there's a movie out about them this weekend so suck it up kids and then uh, Caroline Bridgman from uh, 9.15 is part of that conversation as well sorry and then uh, I don't know what's coming up at half nine but I'm sure it's great stuff it's uh, 7.50 this morning here on OTBAM. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, 087-918-180 is the uh, WhatsApp number if you want to get in touch. So, uh, yeah, Tom Brady here. We had a we had a, a news article that came through yesterday, Jerry. I don't know if you saw it. I've decided instead of going to Fox Sports straight away, I want to get into um, stand-up comedy. You'll notice that I don't have a Tom Brady impersonation. It's just a... <laughs> generic American accent but that's all we got uh, 350 million quid you're, you're postponing that for, for what vanity you know what Stan- now, I, I gotta say I gotta say yeah you've been a fairly funny character on social media whoever is writing your gags is a good gag writer well stand up's the toughest gig in the world Jer I mean I've I've, super, I've played in Super Bowls but you're proving that standing yeah uh, do you want to hear some jokes uh, so what I've basically done is prepare a few we've got the uh got the uh, fans already here but i prepared a few jokes and you guys can let me know you know continue in the stand-up genre or or just cut it off what did the football coach say to the vending machine i don't know give me my quarterback hey <laughs> what's a chicago bears quarterbacks thank you what's a chicago bears quarterbacks favorite pa- favorite pastry turnovers anyone watching the the last of us on on hbo no yeah, it stars Pedro Pascal and uh, an up-and-coming actress. I can't remember her second name, though. She's uh, she's some Bella chick. Get it? Hey. Bill Bella chick. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of Bills, uh, I bet Buffalo were glad I retired. Those guys saw more L's against me than you'd see in a car at a driving test center, am I right? <laughs> do, they, do, they, do they have L's in America on the learner plates? I don't think. Who knows, Jer? <laughs> Speaking of uh, Buffaloes, they have a pretty good relationship with gazelles in the African Plains. They get on better with Giselles than I do, that's for sure. Hey. Because uh, divorce. <laughs> the bit where you explain the joke is the best. Sure. I'm not experienced at this, so TV you guys 12. can let me know if you want me to keep going. Thank uh, you. Why did the American football chicken cross the road? To get to the winning side. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> As many people will know, I was, uh, I was raised a Catholic. My favorite prayer? The Hail Mary, of course. <laughs> Thank you. How much more of this? There's only, uh, there's only four more jokes to hey, go, Jim. Okay, four downs yep. to go. Four downs to go. Fourth and ten. This one takes a bit of work, but still, stick with me. Now that I'm retired, I think I'll go to some plays on Broadway. There have been so many great American playwrights. Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller. Makes me proud when I think of the Stars and Stripes. You could say there's a, a flag on the play. <laughs> okay. I had to do a broadcasting course before uh, getting my big money job with Fox Sports, but the uh, the marker only gave me thirty nine percent, so uh, I failed. That's what I call pass interference. <laughs> Hopefully, they don't give me the sack. Am I right? 
I really fumbled that one, huh? <clears throat> Finally, I wanted to go for like 12 jokes for this stand-up debut to represent the number I famously wore in my jersey for years. But they just said, go with half that many. Pick six. Hey, boom. No, no, no it's our wipe and we're done. Thank you, so you, you expect um, Tom Brady to be a success there? You can come out of character now? You can pull the yeah, whole down. Okay, yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. It was worth, like I mean, best of luck to him. I, I wish him all the, all the best in the world. I think so. It's the story the story breaks that he's actually he's suspending his three hundred and fifty million dollar contract with Fox to become a stand up comedian. That's the headline, and everybody's like, "What? what the, yeah, what an attention seeker!" Or sorry, they were like, "Oh, that's very brave." And um, and then it's not true at all, is it? Apparently, he just wants to do a Netflix comedy roast, which is not uh, suspending your contract with Fox at all. It's like. Doing another gig while you've got one other gig that a rival broadcaster yeah. has paid you. So I don't know. Let's, 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 see, let's wait and see. Because I think if he did stand up comedy, it would go pretty much as, as well as it's just gone there now. Like, I think. So I didn't realize this, but most of the stand up comedians are having uh, people write gags for them. So he's a, you know. So it's all about uh, delivery, is what you're saying. And like, he's been in the public eye for 20 whatever years and has been doing press conferences and I'm sure could like with a bit of coaching seems seems like a coachable chap maybe yeah yeah I think if anyone's coachable it's 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 Tom Brady he could obviously pay the best gag writers so like I, is it beyond the man's possibility that he could put together and also when you think about it if he goes and starts doing shows in Boston and maybe in Florida there's going to be a lot of people who think this is Tom Brady I'm going to laugh at him because it's already funny you know like yeah possibly they're going to go they're going to buy tickets anyway because it's going to go he, he's not going to be held to the same standard as a common or garden comedian who's uh, fighting their way up and also he's going to have access as I said to you know good material yeah like I don't know like when you say Netflix comedy roast does he want to have celebrities on that he roasts or does he want to sit there and be roasted? I don't know what. Presumably, it's a it's a series where he does both and makes money either way. You know, the first one's obviously a roast on him because that's what you would do, and then you establish precedent, and then everybody feels like, well, if Tom Brady's taking the piss out of his divorce, then oh, I'm I'm gonna have to, have to you know, like, and it, it's a. <laughs> there will be a few gazelle Giselle jokes thrown in there. You'd imagine if anyone has any better Tom Brady style jokes, or if Tom himself is watching this morning and wants to dial in. And give us oh, he'll see it, Shane. He'll see, he'll it. see it. Yeah, yeah. We'll tag you TB12. Right. Um, news comes through that uh, Kieran Marmion is no longer going to be part of the Connacht setup. We don't actually know where he's going yet, Cameron, do we? Oh, we do. We do. Good morning. Where's yeah. he going? He's going to Bristol. All right. Yeah. So, um, news came through yesterday, and I think a lot of Connacht fans felt this was coming uh, when they were announcing all these contract extensions for different players. You saw the likes of Gavin Thornbury, Dennis Buckley, Caelan Blade, Niall Murray, Dave Heffern and John Porch. There's a name there that's missing and it's um, Kieran Marmiant. And we thought, okay, I don't like where this is going. Surely Kieran would sign on at this point if he was staying. And then the news came through that he was leaving yesterday um, after 11 seasons with the province. And then the news subsequently came through that he's joining Pat Lam at Bristol Bears. So yet another player from Connacht going over to join Pat and obviously former Connacht captain John Muldoon, who's in the coaching setup there. Um, disappointing, obviously, because he's been such a servant to the province, but um, such is life. Well, he's 31. So presumably you're like, you go off and you make your bank, Karen. Yeah, yeah, I don't think anyone begrudges him um, going over and kind of seeing out the rest of his career if that's what he wants. Um, at Bristol, uh, he's probably got as much out of the Connacht experience as he wanted. He was part of the uh, 2016 Pro 12 
winning side. Uh, he picked up 28 caps for Ireland during his time uh, with Connacht. So, yeah, yeah, hopefully he can ride off into the sunset with Bristol, who are putting together a really strong team for next year, it looks like. Um, but, you know, he's been fantastic, really great off the bench. I think he's been overtaken by uh, Caden Blade this year. Um so that, just explain that for anybody who isn't watching week in, week out. He isn't first choice anymore. No, no, he's mainly coming off the bench now. Um, Not a bad bench player to have at this stage of his career, though, as well. Not know? at all, no. Like, whatever he... You, you look back at the uh, early highlight reels, I was watching them last night, and uh, you just type in here in Marmion, and a lot of them are tries against Leinster, which is quite funny. Mm-hmm. Um, he really was a thorn in the side of the Leinster um, team back when they used to get really pissed off the Connacht would turn up for these games like and really blow them away when they come down to the sports ground but that that kind of pace those sniping runs kind of filtered out of his game recently and he's got plenty of experience he can control the tempo of games just as well as he used to be able to um, but I think that pace has gone a little bit out of his game now at this stage and Quaylen Blade just offers a little bit more from the off for Connacht so it doesn't really surprise me that he's been a replacement um, more than he hasn't been recently. Um, but obviously, devastating news for Connacht. I mean, Jack Carty, he really, really was a great partnership with him and uh, and Kieran Marmion. So, yeah, lots of luck to him. 224 appearances so far for Connacht. Let's hope he can kind of uh, finish it off. They're into eighth at the moment in the URC, so... Hopefully he can sign off by getting us into Champions Cup next year. He was one of the first sports people I ever interviewed in okay. college, Kieran Marmion. Uh, it was over the phone, but um, you look at his career, like the career he's had, even the, the Capsule Ireland, and starting that New Zealand test, first time we beat them at home. He's, mm. had, he's had an extraordinary, I'm not saying he's, he's finished by any stretch, but he's had a really, really good career. Oh, brilliant career. Um, I remember distinctly there's a game they play against Australia in 2016, um, we just about get over the line in one of those games in like the mid tens where we were just beating Australia and they were class games. But I think he came on at half time and played for a good bit on the wing mm. and put in a really good defensive set. So he's one of those players who's just incredibly versatile and is happy to take whatever brief you can throw at him and say, Look, I'll do what needs to be done here. So lots of luck to Marmo. Um, he's got Marmo, a. I love that. He's got a. Yeah, that's like Harry Maguire calling Garnacho Garns last night after the match. I was about to say because Marmo is a very Irish rugby nickname. If he was because he was born in England um, mm. and went to school there, um, he'd be Marms surely. Marms. Oh, so Marmo there. for Ireland, but Marms I, if you're English. I think it's O for here, S Marms. for over there. Yeah. So I, I prefer the O. To yeah. be honest, there's a little bit more of a lilt than Marms. Marm's it's kind of sounds a Dublin like, thing, the O, isn't it? Anto, Deco. Yeah, like, but Marmy kind of sounds like an adjective to describe someone who's, I don't know, sickly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to step in here. An adult in the uh, Good stuff, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. A cult hero with the Connacht fans, basically. For sure, absolutely. And uh, we'll miss him, but hopefully we can um, help him finish his Connacht career on a high. Best of luck, Marms. OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. It's bang on 8 o'clock this morning. Still to come, uh, Vinnie Perth, Virtual Insanity, and we'll be talking about the Debenham Strikers. Uh, Mars Brosnan is going to talk us through the Division 2 Farago as it is at the moment. But up next, Daniel Story is going to talk to us about last night's football and particularly about the importance of Casemiro. That is the Egyptian king, Mo 
Mustala, who's done it. What a goal. It's the biggest game in English football. Marcus Rashford puts them back in front. This Sunday, Liverpool take on Manchester United live and off the ball. You have to keep going. Take the thing and go again. And that's what we'll do. You need personality. You need typical character in your squad to win in the end. Join Stephen Doyle and Kenny Cunningham for full live and exclusive radio commentary this Sunday from half four. Scintillating counter-attacking goal! Right, I'm delighted to say Daniel Storey is with us to talk to us about the situation at Manchester United specifically at the moment. Uh, Daniel, we, we are surrounded in this studio by Manchester United fans and they're very happy with life at the moment. They're feeling like there's a bit of a throwback era going on. Basically, their belief, their contention is that they're back. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly this happens. I think for most of last season, and probably the season before that, I was kind of writing and arguing that super clubs like Manchester United don't need these kind of massive overhauls. They don't necessarily even need new owners, although I think we can all agree that would be a good thing. What they need is uh, some old-fashioned competence. And the bit between their teeth and probably the kind of finishing line in sight, however far away it is, that gives everyone a belief that they're moving in the right direction. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing it quicker than I imagined. I think quicker than probably everyone in that studio imagined. But uh, when you get a, a massively successful, historically successful, rich club with good players and give them a, an able coach, it's, it's amazing how quickly everything can look like it's fallen into place. I think um, it's difficult to... It's easy to overstate nights like last night and also a League Cup, but also in the wider context of everything that's gone before, it's also really important that they have a trophy early on that they can pin their hopes to and, and kind of go, OK, that, that's what the level of expectation should be. We saw the price of the tickets and obviously Newcastle were, were feeding into that as well. But the the slight hangover they had in the first half, being able to think their way through the... Uh, second half last night and be clearly full value for the win notwithstanding the the Antonio misses Um, that's the type of thing that means everybody bounces into training and it's a reservoir that they can call on for the rest of the season isn't it? Yeah success like that and results like that I think eventually become self-fulfilling in that the next time Manchester United fall a goal behind uh, they will say we've done this before there's no reason to panic this is not Brentford away Uh, this is not Saucy dad at home in the in the Champions League. This is it. This is you know this is our chance to to prove things right. And the other thing that feeds into that is that when the squad is playing well, um, the competition for places just kind of looks extraordinarily better than it did last season. There's a game recently, and you looked at the bench and you saw well Sancho was there, but he was there last season. Um, everyone on that bench that they used as game changers was already at Manchester United. They're not new this summer, and yet the squad looks better because they're informed because they want to be part of that first team and those in the first team want to stay there. So, yeah, they, they they were probably slightly fortunate, I think, last night in the way that the game went, but you cannot doubt the kind of mentality monster element of, of forcing victory late on. Probably no coincidence, Daniel, that Casemiro comes off the bench <laughs> at half-time last night and things start to take an upswing, um, even psychologically for an opposition to see the likes of Casemiro with, with such vast experience coming off the bench must have an impact. You wrote a piece for iNews uh, in the last number of days on Casemiro and, and the impact he's had at Old Trafford already. I think you said he's, he's probably had the biggest culture change at the club since since one Eric Cantona and that turned out fairly, fairly well. So what is it about Casemiro so far at Old Trafford that's just working? 
So, so with with Cantona, the thing was, is it wasn't. And Ferguson said this when Cantona left and when he retired. He said it wasn't so much the impact on the pitch, although that was massive. It was that he taught Ferguson and Ferguson's fledgling players, the class of '92, the importance of of practice, of repeated, um, you know, situation training, of fitness training, of drills and that you could squeeze everything out of your ability and if you look at that class of 92 that's exactly what they did Neville Beckham Scholes but they, they were not necessarily the most talented players but they squeezed everything out and that they believe was down to Cantona with Casemiro I think it's this this desperation to win when he joined Man United I was a bit circumspect not because I didn't think he was very good but because I couldn't really work out why he was there um, Manchester United were a mess and it wasn't an obvious fit for him having won the Champions League. Um, but he basically saw it as a chance to make Man United Man United again. And the the kind of the demonstrable hunger he has to do that is, I think, shared by nobody else currently at Manchester United other than, it seems, Eric Ten Hag. And Casemiro seems to have found a kind of kindred spirit in Ten Hag of this, like, fighting for the millimetres, he calls it. And Ten Hag has certainly found a kindred spirit in Casemiro. Uh, just to, to remind everybody that when he signed first, the first couple of games where it looked like he had been fit because he'd been playing for Real Madrid, he didn't go straight into the team. It, it, there was a couple of games where it was like Casemiro is available but not selected. What's going on here? And so obviously Ten Hag has just carefully husbanded the available resources and was was obviously I don't know what was happening there if it was just like an acclimatisation they were having discussions and they hadn't quite reached some kind of deep understanding because the the natural thing to do was like we're getting battered here by very mediocre teams that you're going out there and you're playing 98, 99 minutes Yeah I think so I think uh, I I mean I don't know but my reading of the situation would be that Ten Hag pretty quickly realised that Casemiro is exactly what he wanted we should remember that Manchester United spent most, if not all, the summer chasing Frankie de Jong. So Casemiro was not the number one option. He was a very happy accident, in fact. And I, you know, we don't know how de Jong would have worked out, but if he'd have done better than Casemiro, then United would have certainly been in a title race. I don't think he would have done better. I think he would have taken longer to settle. So I suspect there was a bit of, yeah, an acclimatisation period where they realised it wasn't the player they were planning for. They probably wanted to keep Casemiro out of that firing line when the team was playing badly. There were enough things, I think, that Ten Hag was trying to work out without working out a new central midfielder as well. Um, And as soon as he slotted in, they looked brilliant. They've lost three league games, I think, since Casemiro started playing in the team and he only started one of those. So, yeah, the impact is, is, is so obvious. It's actually a little bit forgotten about now in the narrative. The whole uh, transfer saga was not about this guy. This was like a completely left field. So maybe the whole better to have a, a lucky general than a good one. If Ten Hag is going to be lucky for a couple of seasons, then that's great too. Yeah, I mean, it's about, he would say, and you know, he's probably at the benefit of the doubt at the moment, that it's about you know, football management is, is partly about proactive work and planning for opposition and planning for problems and partly about reactive work which is when something changes it's how quickly you react to that because you know he will know as well as anyone that two or three bad results at a club like Manchester United in a row and the pressure is on and the pressure was on at the start of the season you know we had the whole kind of Eric 10 months thing when he was joined and people were quickly changing that to Eric 10 games after the Brentford defeat Um, but his ability to react in that situation and yes, obviously have a player like Casemiro to come into the team, but it goes beyond that. You know, it's the way he's 
guided certain players. It's the the culture he's instilled in the dressing room, the kind of this idea of discipline, you know, the dropping Marcus Rashford two hours before a match because he was 10 minutes late to the pre-game meeting. These sort of things make a difference and they sound a bit twee in hindsight, but they really do make a difference. You know, you're dealing with human beings here and they are all very good players, but he is... He is motivating them in a way that the last two, three, four managers haven't. Maybe I'm not following the right accounts anymore, but I do remember there was like pictures coming from training of who had won the five-a-side when Solskjaer was there. I haven't seen those. Uh, I haven't heard any uh, gossip about people being cliquey. I haven't heard any of the the leaks that were coming from the the team over the last four or five seasons. Now, loads of players who have media empires are no longer part of it. But there are those players who were there who are potentially disaffected, who for whatever reason aren't having their agent stories appear in the newspapers. Yeah. And and you know, to to move on from the very obvious thing I just said, like footballers are human beings and they don't if you're a professional footballer, you want your team to win. You want to be playing and you want your team to win. And for that to happen, you want a culture at your club that makes you feel valued. At work, in our place of work, we all want to feel valued. We all want to feel like we can make a difference. We want to feel like the people directly above us care about us. And we want to feel like the people around us, our peers and and ourselves, are all working towards the same goal. It sounds very simple, but I think at a football club with this kind of mass of politics, particularly, as you say, with some of the, 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 the egos they had at the club, that became very difficult. And although it might seem like Ken Hag is a very complex manager tactically, he's relying on very simple principles of I'm new here. I want it to work. Some of you are new here, the same. Some of you aren't. So tell me what wasn't working before and let's work on a plan that does work. And that that's <laughs> ostensibly, that's what he's done. It comes down to attitude as well, Daniel, doesn't it? For, amongst the players, like I think of the likes of Garnacho who had uh, supposedly some attitude problems in training, which have clearly disappeared. Fred comes on and does a job. You have Varane going over and, and kind of uh, fist pumping the, the supporters at the end of every win. And Casemiro, I mean, you, you touched on it in your piece as well. Like He, he scores a goal in Wembley and, and there's barely a, a, a glimmer of a smile on his face. <laughs> Even after the full-time whistle, he's given out to Bruno Fernandes for not squaring the ball to Sancho. And the biggest cheer of the afternoon from him came when he shepherds the ball out for a goal kick. I mean, a born winner comes to mind as the phrase. Yeah, it does. And that, and that sort of thing rubs off on players around you. There's no doubt about that. You know, again, to mention Cantona, the, I remember Roy Keane kind of saying, you know, he walks in the place with his collar turned up and he's like, you know, I own this place. Show me that you do too. Show me that you'll join me. And Casemiro, I don't think, is the per- the type of personality off the pitch to demand that kind of, you know, he's not a, a, a huge personality, but what he does is set an example like nobody else. And he also has the ultimate answer if anyone questions him because if, if any player says well you know is this the right way he can say well I, I've won five Champions League titles mate and that's more than the rest of this squad other than Rafael Varane have together so maybe I am right maybe my example is right you mentioned Varane in terms of fist bumping as well this stuff works getting the fans on side works getting the players around you works and yeah, it, it, it sounds simple and it, it looks more simple because Manchester United have a collection of very talented players and now a talented coach. But the same principles are true whether it's National League or Premier League or Champions League. If you if you get buy-in from supporters, buy-in from senior players and bring the younger players with you, it can look very exciting very quickly. Nice handy follow-up fixture at Anfield on, on Sunday, of course. Um, is there a possibility that they can crowbar their way into the title race? Yeah, I'm going. I can't wait because... Well, I, I got tricked into thinking that Liverpool might be back and then I went to the Real Madrid home game uh, and got very quickly tricked back out of that. Um, 
Liverpool have since kept clean sheets, but it does feel now that when a, a, a high-class in-form opponent comes along, they have weaknesses that are very easy to spot. And that is Ten Hag's mantra, basically, spotting opposition weaknesses and, and playing on them. Um, I think they will probably win and I think they'll probably delight in winning. And I don't think they are in a title race at the moment, but maybe that's a maybe that's the perfect scenario because they're certainly in the other three competitions that they're, they're fighting for. And if you end up kind of sleepwalking into a title race by just knocking through wins and other people slipping up, all the better. That is the best way to enter a title race if you've not been fancied. Reduce the pressure by just kind of sitting under the surface and letting two teams above you do what they do and then kind of coming through. I think they're probably too late because of that early start of the season, but that doesn't mean we should give anything other than a kind of positive inflection to this. What's your feeling about where City are at at the moment? Because like, so we see a very, very competent, ruthless performance from Arsenal last night. We can talk about them in a minute, but um, if, if, Manchester United are to get back in the title race. They obviously do need to make up the six-point odds on, on City. Uh, is that is that like our City about to reel off fifteen games and we'll all go ah oh, there they are? It yeah, doesn't feel that way for whatever no, reason. No, I've been saying that for about three months and it feels like we're running out of fifteen-game streaks now. So yeah, they 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 are. I, I can't really work them out. My 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 kind of hypothesis is that the top three from last season in what was an exhaustive season, going into an exhaustive this season, this season with obviously the World Cup in the middle were were Liverpool, Chelsea and Manchester City. And two of those clubs have fallen off really badly and one of them has fallen off slightly. And I think the reason that City have only fallen off slightly is because um, A, the manager and B, the form they had from last season uh, and the squad they have has kind of taken them through those pronounced dips. But it isn't the same City. Um, they're trying to do different things in midfield. They're trying to do different things with the fullbacks. You know, Cancelo's left, Rico Lewis has come in. They're trying to acclimatise Erling Haaland and change the way they attack. So they aren't the same city. If Arsenal are not going to get a better chance to win the league, I don't think this season is probably the best way to put it because next year, I'm sure they will be back to their imperious best. And um, they aren't quite there at the moment. They aren't going to do the 12 wins in a row. I don't believe that anymore because... They've just dropped too many silly points. You know, Brentford at home, Forest away. It's, yeah, it's, it's very uncity like So it is Arsenal's to lose, I think, without creating that undue pressure on them that they haven't bottled a title race if they don't win it. Is it the argument we were kind of talking about it this morning, Daniel, that Arsenal just don't have that title winning experience in the squad? Because everyone's, everyone's been saying that the blip is, is just around the corner for Arsenal, but, but so far they've been, they've been brilliant. I think there comes a point where title winning experience will be key and we, we are probably about to find out how much the difference off the pitch signing Gabriel Jesus and uh, Alexander Zinchenko will make as title winners. Um, but Arsenal are almost flipping that narrative on it, their head at the moment. They're kind of, because they've got the, the youngest team in the Premier League and they've got one of the most experienced, inexperienced managers in terms of title races in that I can remember in Premier League history. Um, they're almost doing this on the fly, but managing to convert that into a positive. It's not that they lack the experience, it's that they lack the, the kind of inbuilt pressure or the fear um, that comes with being in title races and not having won them before. So they're fresh, they're new. They were fourth or fifth favourites at the start of the season. They seem to be still running on that kind of autumn vibe of just our attacking players are better than your defensive players. So at the end of this game, we're probably going to have won. And somehow they're managing to absolve themselves of that pressure. It will come, um, not least in that City away game. 
that is obviously huge if City are within grabbing distance. But there's something very early Klopp Liverpool about this Arsenal team in that they're able to kind of swat opponents away and only realise the importance of what they've done after they've done it. Do you feel Liverpool are, since that Real Madrid game you said you intended, like, do you feel like they're, they're turning somewhat of a corner or are they going to be brought back down to earth this weekend? Because we're seeing performances from the likes of Simicas and Jada. Salah has a smile on his face as well. The, the last three or four games have been a little, aside from the Real Madrid game, have been more encouraging for Jurgen Klopp? Yeah, I think it's probably now as simple as they are in a, a, a mind frame and in a place with the midfield where they will be beaten by the highest class opponents. But they still have enough drive under Klopp because he he clearly still has the love from the squad and they still have enough talent, particularly in sacking areas and in central defence if they can get a partnership that stays together where um, they will beat or they should beat most teams in the Premier League. I'm not sure if that most teams includes Manchester United at home. That's what makes it a fascinating game for me. But yeah, they have enough to beat teams like Wolves at home. They had enough to beat Newcastle um, because they had 20 minutes where everyone performed their peak and their opponent completely fell apart they will still be able to do that Liverpool they're good enough I just don't think they're good enough to um, famous last words I don't think they're quite going to have enough to push for that top four uh, from a tactical perspective how does Ten Hag attack what what so the weakness in, in midfield that we we all believe Liverpool have at the moment how do you get at that with his current crop of players Ten Hag's current crop of players I mean so what I think Ten Hag will do, and what he does a lot is he talks about counter-pressing, which is basically when you lose the ball high at the pitch, try to win it back within a period of time with these kind of triggers. And the, there's triggers. So when one player gets the ball, everyone will know. Let's say Virgil van Dijk gets the ball at feet. Everyone will know where they're running. When Alisson gets the ball to feet, everyone will know where they're running. If you look at that Real Madrid game, I mean, there was a very obvious error from, from Alisson, which came from being pressed. Um, but in general... Um, again against Crystal Palace last week, you saw Liverpool players just look, defenders looking incredibly worried under pressure, not really knowing where their next pass was, not knowing um, who was going to be available. And, and the Liverpool we knew as a very successful outfit knew their next action. They knew where the next pass was going to come from. And that, that stems from confidence from players, let's say Fabinho, not being quite at it. And so maybe not demanding the ball in those tight areas because he's afraid of losing it. So that will be what Ten Hag says. He will say, press up the pitch, force errors, because as soon as you force an error for a goal against a, a team at home in a big game, you kind of put the fear of God into everyone. You, you scare the crowd, you scare the player who's made the pass and the next player that's receiving the pass. So I think it will all be about that pressure off the ball. And to make a very obvious point, that's why not having Cristiano Ronaldo in this team um, works better because it's a real team ethic in that attack in terms of the pressing. Can I just ask you briefly, Daniel, about the, the relegation battle in the Premier League? So we're currently looking Southampton at 18 points, Rock Bottom, Bournemouth 21 points and Everton 21 points with Leeds just outside the relegation spots on 22. Uh, bad result for Sean Dyche and Everton last night. I know Nottingham Forest are a team you followed closely as well. They're up to 13th. They have a lot of teams in the rearview mirror, but still, they're only, what, four points above relegation? And you look at that game this weekend, Sunday at 2 o'clock, Forest at home to Sean Dyche's Everton. I mean, there are some big, big games coming up. How, how do you see the relegation <laughs> battle playing out? Yeah, as a Forest fan, I've kind of labelled... We've been dreadful away from home. We scored three away goals in Premier League this season. The record is lowest seven by Norwich, and we're hardly closing down on that at the moment. So the, the home games <clears throat> the home games are massive anyway. And you look at Forest's record at home and it's brilliant. They haven't lost since 
October in the league at home. They've beaten Leeds, they've beaten Palace, um, they beat West Ham back in August. So, yeah, this is vital. If Forest win this, they're seven points above Everton with a game in hand. Uh, and the reality is, is those teams aren't really picking up enough points elsewhere. Um, but if Forest lose that and suddenly they become unstuck at home, then they're in. Then I think they go down because they're just not doing anything away from home. Everyone above Everton is looking at Everton, Bournemouth, and Southampton and saying, "Please let you be our three. Please let you not pick up enough points." Because for whatever, for various reasons, there's an awful lot of teams, and it's, it goes above Forest to you know even to Palace that are creaking and are just kind of desperate for the season to be over. And we're in early March, but we've still got 15, 14 games left of the season um, because of the World Cup. So there's 35, 40% of the season to play now. And yet we're looking at it as a kind of the longest home straight in Premier League history. It's going to be very interesting to see who ties up. Daniel, great to have you with us. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Cheers, thank you very much. Enjoy the game on Sunday as well. It's Daniel Story there, Chief Football Writer with iNewspaper. Uh, it is 25 minutes past eight this morning. If you want to get in touch, 087-9180-180 is the WhatsApp number. Or you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Follow us at Off the Ball AM. Or of course, we're on Instagram, uh, as are all the cool kids and influencers these days. Uh, OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. We're turning to Division 2 in the Allianz Football League. It's a deep dive. Uh, Morris Brosnan of the Irish Examiner is with us. Morris, I was trying to make the case in my head that this might be the greatest Division 2 of all time. The dubs, like still the the uh, remnant of the greatest Gaelic football team ever in Division 2. Derry, legitimate All-Ireland contenders in Division 2. Mickey Hart, Louth, uh, you know, an absolute mastermind, one of the greatest managers of all time. Uh, the Mead story, because Colin O'Rourke's first season is there, uh, Claire under Colin Collins, the longest serving intercounty manager in position. Limerick, massively disappointing. And then, of course, the magnificent seven rides again. It's the second one, the lesser sequel with the uh, Kildare management team, who aren't quite doing what I hoped they would do. So, And, and it all matters. There's like some team is going to end up playing in the Talton Cup who do not want to be there. Yeah, I, I love that energy, Jar. I couldn't agree with you more. Even just, just from a, um, just a slight tangent, but just. As to cover it from a reporting perspective, it's so much more enjoyable than almost anything else in Gaelic football. Um, I just at the Harding last week. The less said about that, the better. Um, I I'm doing the this weekend. I'm in the Hyde. I'm at Mayo Roscommon, and I was just thinking about it this morning. There is an element of I wouldn't be one bit surprised if there's an element of shadow boxing in that game. As great as we all love the league, and but just given the nature of this season and the calendar, I think. Division 1 has slightly been less than the small, but there is an element of shadow boxing within that. Whereas the Division 2, just to report on it, it is box office players are desperate to play. Sidelines are getting panicky. There's, you know, the games I've been at are absolutely full of The crowd are totally enthralled by it. It is, without shadow doubt, the best competition in the J. I, I could not agree with you more. I left out the Red Storm Rising of James O'Donoghue's Cork. How the hell did I forget that? And, <laughs> and actually, looking at the fixtures, there's a, there's, so, they, the Cork needs Dublin to beat Derry this weekend but if they do there's still a, there's still a world in which Cork can rack up big scores and squeak into Division 1 next year it would be uh, okay we don't expect it. it it would be outrageous if that did happen but um, Cork can look up as much as they have to look down they can do yeah I, you do, it does feel a small bit doesn't it that the, the width of a post the Brian Hardy's late shot could end up scuppering them the, that would feel incredibly consequential later on in the year the, the thing that's interesting Jared, is though if you rather than start with the league if you reverse this if Cork don't go up for example right and you fast forward to 
and let's say Claire, who I Claire have a nightmare run of games now. Really, you know, they they play Cork this weekend, the weekend after. I'm pretty sure it's Derry, and then they've Limerick. So, yeah, yeah. So there's a. It's feasible that they only end up on four points, and that would put them right in, in relegation trouble. But the caveat is that Clare play Cork again in the first round of the Monster Championship this year. They're on that side of the draw. How many times have we heard about poor Colin Collins? If only he hadn't been drawn with Kerry in a semi final, they could have made a Monster final. They're on that side, and that game then becomes incredible. Like the, the, that you're saying to Clare, there's still an avenue for you to make Sam Maguire get to a Monster final here. You're on the opposite side to Kerry. That, that that the consequence, the significance of that game suddenly, I think, is is really interesting because that's where where, pe- where people need to start is that you know I, I'm not going to do it now, but pick your four provincial winners and your four provincial finalists and work backwards from there, and look at the the options for teams like I look at a team like Down as well, like Down on the other side of Down on that side with Armagh, um, Armagh Antrim in a preliminary game, and then there so it's Down Donegal, Cavan, Armagh potentially in a quarter-final, all looking for a, a chance to get to a, a semi-final and then a, a final year to Sam Maguire. Like, there's legitimate pathways for those sorts of teams that are connected to the league, is what I'm saying. It's just given the, the nature of the draw, that uh, even if for a team like Clare or a team like Cork, they could have come off this with off a, a really promising league. Can you imagine if they lost that game? Like, the, how that would change the complexion of their season? I think that's... Um, a lot of people worried that the provincials will be lessened in this system, and to a certain extent they will be. But for teams like that, I think it becomes even more interesting. That uh, that Louth Kildare game this weekend in Louth, Morris feels like well, what's the equivalent of a, of a Gaelic six point a four pointer, I suppose. Like it, it's <laughs> it's absolutely huge because whoever loses that, all of a sudden, you, you might be staring the Talton Cup in the face. Absolutely, yeah. I, for, especially for Kildare, I, I think the this game is massive. Like, it is absolutely huge. It's kind of crazy that they've found us in this situation. I. Part of me thinks Clare are. I hate to do this, you know, Jerry. I, I, I think they're the most interesting team in Gaelic football this year. I, the, the, Clare, like any I talked about a second ago, could come off a disaster of uh, a league and make their season in that semi final against Dublin. It's not likely, but again, just when you look at the, the, the nature of the structure, it, it's, it's there's an option there basically that they're on that side of the draw. Um, I actually think Lowe's, when I was doing this exercise this morning, I think Louder are an outside bet to get to a Leinster final this year. I think the, the path is right there for them. When you can take into consideration that they're on the same side as Westmead, who are already guaranteed their spot in a Sam Maguire. So what, how much is their need? A relatively new-looking Mead, who they've already beaten. There's absolutely a, an option that Louds could end up in a, in a Leinster final. So regardless of how this game goes at the weekend, we could still see Louds in a, in a Sam Maguire as well. But I think it's more pressing for Kildare, given the fact they're on the same side as Dublin, given the scale of negativity around that team I think this this weekend is it does feel a bit make or break the scale of negativity is coming off record breaking defeats that's the the issue we were looking back at the the stats over the last while and uh, Kildare have had um, 10 point or more defeats in Newbridge uh, very rarely in their entire history but two in the league four times two of them have happened in this season and it's like uh oh it's um this is not great. I, I, Newbridge has become a, a disaster for them and they can't seem to get their best players playing the way we know they can. It's almost like their their training is totally out of kilter with where they are supposed to be. And maybe maybe they've decided that their eggs are going in the Leinster Championship basket this year. But it's, very, it's a, a really risky high-wire act. It is. And I, uh, I don't see... Evidence of that. I've seen 
every single Clare game. I actually covered their game in Clare in Cusick Park as well. And I don't see... I, I, I tend to agree with some of the conversation around Clare in terms of the criticism of... I'm sure you've heard it too, Jared. There's no game plan. There's no, there's no structure. The players don't necessarily know what they're doing. They're taking pot shots and there's, they're reliant on individuals to drag them over games. And I... I disagree. Like, I, I, I see lots of evidence of a game plan. Um, if you, I anybody watched the game at the weekend, Michael Murphy was on goal commentary and he mentioned at the very start, Clare are doing something different to what a lot of teams do against Serie. They're not attacking with 15 players. They're leaving Mick O'Grady and Owen Doyle back on the 45 because they're conscious of getting caught on the counter. That actually reminded me of the anybody listening to the football pod this week. That was a point that James made as well, that you kind of need to leave two back for fear against teams like that because they break so quickly for fear of being caught that way. So that, now, whether you agree with it or not, that's structure. I think the problem Claire's the greatest problem is their attack and because they're coughing up these turnovers or taking shots from really difficult angles and then they're getting caught with these high turnovers on the other side, that's killing them. But I don't think it's, I actually do, I see a plan, I see the, the, the realms of a plan there, there's a structure there. So then you flip that and see if their problem isn't necessarily their structure, is there a is there a psychological thing? Like the extent to which after Sharing the French for that first goal of the weekend was. We're just gonna we're just gonna interrupt there. Sorry, Mark. The, the, the line has deteriorated to a point now where it, it's uh, it's too tricky. So we we just dial you back and um, and we get to it. Those those stats, right? Uh, last Sunday, Kildare equaled their second biggest home NFL defeat of all time. Nineteen seventy six, Cork beat them five nine to six points. Uh, also, that seventy six team beaten by Kerry three ten to five points, and then Derry two fifteen to seven points last week. And, and look, the uh, a lot of people saying afterwards. Kildare goalkeeper could have been man of the match because it should have been six. Yeah, um, Donald made a lot of good saves. Uh, Wasn't enough under under Mick O'Dwyer when Mick came in first in the early nineties. The the team battened down the hatches and became super defensive to like set up a defensive structure and um, became a hand passing side mm. and were uh, trying to win games seven six and they didn't score a goal in the ninety one ninety two season uh, for seven games. Uh, they've now gone seven games without scoring a goal again. And they'll break that record if they don't score a goal against Loud on Sunday. Mm. And as I said, uh, they've suffered seven 10-plus defeats in Newbridge. If you're not raising green flags in the league, you're, you're, you're going one direction. Seven 10-plus defeats in Newbridge. We think this is in history, ever, like, to the dawn of time, back to the dinosaurs. And two of them have come in their last two games, 10-plus point defeats. So Morris is back. Um, I think, hopefully, you're able to hear us a bit better. You were, you were making the point that... Um, uh, th- there is a structure. There's the bones of a structure there, and it's identifiable if you if you do the analysis. But is is it a psychological issue? Is the question? And I think that's the the key question from a Galera perspective. Because I just think the way that game slid away from them, and I don't. And it's very hard to put your finger. On. They conceded an early goal against Dublin first game in the league, and it didn't seem to knock a stride out of them. Like it didn't seem to rattle Galera. Whereas. Definitely the difference after they conceded the first goal against Derry, it was almost as if they knew if we let the team build up a lead, there was absolutely no hope for us to come back. And it just descended drastically from there. Whether or not that's associated with Newbridge, I don't know, Jared, but I do think that the, uh, there is definitely, there is a plan. You know, there is, I, I see evidence of a plan. I saw that in, in Clare. I kind of saw Clare coughing up that lead coming because you could see exactly what Clare were trying to do. The fact that they were willing to drop off the kick out in the first half playing against the wind and let Clare, who were an unbelievably well-coached team, but a running team, run the ball hard. And then suddenly in the second half, when you're playing into a breeze, 
they got a really good press on the kick out. So they knew what they were doing on the ambitions kick out. They knew what they were doing on their own kick out. They had a plan with their attack. They brought on Daniel Flynn that day as well. Uh, Kevin Flynn came on. They stood, they're able to kick from range to sort of kicking points. So I saw evidence of a, a plan there. I didn't see as much of it at the weekend. I think the way it descended is, is drastic. But I do think there is. It's not as fundamental to say there's no structure or there's no yeah. style of play. I, I, there's something more than that. I, I know they've been working with a sports psychologist and, and they rate her very highly. And uh, this is obviously going to be a, a long-term thing. Derry, it might be a, a bit of a, a false benchmark because they're they're complete wolf in, in sheep's clothing in Division 2. They're a Division 1 team, they're all-Ireland contenders and they're much further down the line than Meath and Kildare. And like if you if you think about last season, they were annihilated in the first 15 minutes against Dublin and then they, they recovered from that to nearly knock Mayo out. And if they just had gotten over Mayo, I think the whole mood would have changed. But there, there is this kind of rump of Kildare supporters who are angry, who are just like, they feel entitled to be angry all the time at everything that's happening because the team won under 20 All-Ireland, so therefore we should be All-Ireland champions already uh, off the back of that. And it's it's fantasy. So it's going to take a long time. I, I it's not. It's, here's the thing, if they win this game and they beat me, then all of a sudden it's been a, a solid, with some disaster in the middle, a Division 2 campaign, and they're looking forward to Sam Maguire, irrespective of what happens, and they can plan for the three games in the round robin, and, you know, there's there's like the green shoots of recovery. But if they lose this game, mm. and they lose against me, suddenly they're a Division 3 team, and they're playing Talton Cup football, and I would suspect a lot of the players might end up playing football in America in the summer. And do you associate the the negativity around supporters with anything to do with their performances in Newbridge? I don't. I, you'd have to say yeah. Like the, the the support in front of your home county is the thing that galvanises people. But like I don't know. I, there's a clip doing the round from the player's voice where Niall Morgan is talking about um, the team being stopped yeah, by yeah. a fan in a, um, an apple green and being told, "Do you think I spent my money to?" Uh, to like. Oh Jesus! You know, maybe just maybe just fans of all counties are yeah, a bit wild. We all get territorial about our county, don't we? I mean, but does that? Do you feel entitled? Do you feel entitled to abuse but, the players? I don't. And is that is that separate from the? There's a, a loyal contingent of Kildare fans. I, I, just to go back to the game in Ennis again for a second. Uh, in the first half of that game, there was an off the wall incident. Uh, Clare was on a back card. The, the, the whole reason that flared up was because of an absolute roar from the far stance. And it was a very vocal roar. Referee had missed it, uh, kind of continuously berating the linesman that he needed to do something about it. The Clare fans there were convinced it was a red card. At the very end of that game, so Clare, at one point they're six points down, they come back to, to win by one. Uh, and they take a kind of a moment in front of the stand with those supporters, supporters who travel across the country. A small, I should stress, a small cohort of supporters, but what it seemed like a very loyal supporters who would back them to the tilt. And the difference between that and... I, the reason I asked that question, I think I find it interesting sometimes the difference between that and fans who could turn up at home uh, nearly kind of with the negativity in their hearts already as they arrive. But just to go back to something you said there a second ago about how players could end up in America. I think that this year, it's probably gone under the radar slightly. This, what the, if Claire were to end up in the Southern Cup and if teams were to throw their hat at it, the damage that would do to the integrity of the competition, because it's a round robin this year, if you were to go back to last year, can you imagine if... Uh, and they're a totally different team now. I, I don't mean this is uh, a slur or anything. Can you imagine if Down were in a round-robin group stage last year, how less enjoyable that competition would be to watch a team who clearly weren't committed to the competition play three games and get what would be fairly three one-sided results? If teams do that in the Thatcher Cup this year, 
it's a disaster for that competition. Like the competition as, as itself, the, the reason we liked that competition last year was because we've got competitive games, teams seem to be buying in, but teams don't buy in and we are, end up suffering three round robin because of the nature of this group. Which everybody was crying out for, let's not forget that, you know, managers were saying this is what we, what we sold last year. So there is kind of an onus on teams to buy it to make this competition work because the alternative is that it becomes still, despite the fact that we have finally have tears, it still becomes one-sided, uncompetitive games, which is exactly why we're all so frustrated by the championship in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be a, a heaping disaster upon disaster. So, look, I don't know. Do you, I, 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 I do still have faith in, in the current Kildare setup. I do think that the fact that they came back against Clare, I do think the fact that they went down against Dublin and showed something suggests that there is still something. And I, I, I absolutely know from uh, people who contact me that the management team and the players are still aligned, that there's no disaffected rump in the camp who are like, oh, this is like that hasn't happened yet so that's why this game is so important at the weekend Kildare hockeyed Loud last year in the Leinster Championship and I actually thought that Loud might give them a game they're definitely going to give them a game this weekend and they're going to give them their fill of it what's going to happen? Yeah I I tend to agree with you you can actually beyond the cliched nature of this usual competition you can actually put stock in the the value of I did a piece of Kevin Feely recently uh, on his return from an Achilles injury and what he did to go from that game at Edentown in August to get back in January is is remarkable. And his it's beyond just doing the physical nature of it, a guy who has the knowledge because of uh, his his profession. There's something more than that. There's a, there's a kind of a drive. That's what I was trying to get at him when I sat down with him. Like, what is it that you know motivated you to continually do this, uh, to put yourself to push these sort of boundaries to get back to play for Calair? And he was adamant that... The reason he did it is, despite the fact that he turned 30 a week after he tore his Achilles, the best is yet to come. And he did not mean that individually, solely individually. He meant that collectively. Like he, he's, he's adamant that he went, he remembers 2010, the, the sensation around that semi-final, and that it is totally attainable for Claire to get back to that level. Now, there is a, to an element, you can actually put stock in that, that a guy with that knowledge with, of, you know, that value of character believes in this team. I, I think there is something, I genuinely do think there is something in that. I know some, some people tend to roll their eyes at that sort of stuff. But no, I think you're right. I, I, I read the I, piece, Morris, it was sensational and I do think that anybody abusing the Kildare footballers needs to read that piece and think, well, I'm a bit of a clown for abusing this crowd because look at the shit that they put themselves through to get to go and represent Kildare and, like, I don't know. It's very disappointing to read some of the stuff that I've been reading on social media. Um, you know, particularly for a group of players who uh, who are not doing this for glory. Like, they're not doing it for... Anyway, look. I got sidetracked there, Mara. Sorry. We, we're, out of to- we're out of time. Give me a prediction for who's going to win that game. Claire. Okay. The right answer. <laughs> Good stuff, Morris. Great to have you with us again. Thanks a million. Thanks, lads. It's uh, Morris Brosnan there from the Irish Examiner. And uh, look, the Kevin Feely piece was absolutely sensational. I'm obviously biased, uh, but... Um, you should dig it out. Uh, worth the subscription alone. 8.43. It is uh, John Duggan. Time for Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! JD. Colder than the penguins in the Antarctic with this slot at the moment, but... We can always get a bit of uh, global warming into it. So uh, we've got two tournaments that start today, and all of this is on the podcast network, on the Go Loud network, on the OTB section, that you can listen to the full picks for both tournaments. So I'm going to give you kind of a, a taster 
in this slot with the headline tip for the Arnold Palmer Invitational. It starts today. The comeback kid of 2023 is going to be the orange man, Ricky Fowler. Working with Butch Harmon again, 50-1 to 1 for this, four each way. Tied third a decade ago in this tournament. He's won in Florida, where this is on before, at the Players' Championship in Bay Hill as well. Um, not well, He's not won a Bay Hill, but he's won the Honda Classic. So he's back working with Butch, as I said. Three top ten finishes and eight starts this season. Seventh in strokes gained approach. A bit like Jason Day, he's riding a wave of contention back into the mix of the top echelon of the Tour. A great wind player as well, Ricky Fowler. I think the comeback is on, and I think he's a good each way bet this week at 50s. The other one is another 50-1 shot, Keith Mitchell, who's the best driver on the Tour this season. So he hits the ball in the fairway, which you need to do with this tough course, Bay Hill, because a lot of rough, a lot of bunkers, a lot of water to be negotiated. Two top fives in his last three starts. First in total driving, keeping the ball in the fairway. One in Florida before the Honda Classic. Tied sixth in this in 2019. Tied fifth in 2020. What's not to like? Well, I suppose the fact that you've got John Rahm, Rory McIlroy and Scotty Scheffler all in this field. The other three that I picked are on the podcast network. For the Puerto Rico Open, the headline pick is Cameron Percy from Australia. 25 to 1. Um, you can get a bit of that price each way. And he's one of the only players in this tournament who is in form. Tied 12th at the Honda Classic last week and he's got two top tens in this event in the last couple of years so he's got recent form in this event and uh, recent form in golf generally so Cameron Percy the headliner for Puerto Rico where we the winner last year at 66 to 1 in Ryan Brem Keith Mitchell and Ricky are the two for the Arnold Palmer Invitational remember four Irish in the field Rory Shane Seamus and Patrick John Ram 6 to 1 um, I'm not a gambling expert but is there like a, just a, just a John Ram just a little little well, if you've been riding the surf on John Ram in the last couple of months, you wouldn't be sitting where I'm sitting right now. You'd be in Spain uh, having a few <laughs> sangrias uh, for breakfast on your cornflakes. Um, he's having a brilliant run. But what all, what all <laughs> these things? That's a peculiar picture yeah. of degeneracy. <laughs> well, yeah. there's, there's many there's many kind of shades of degeneracy that we can create mental images for. Sangria for breakfast is right up there. Mm. Yeah. Fall into canals in Amsterdam, that'd be another maybe. Well, that's it. Or throw in tea. pedal because it's my birthday yet. <laughs> Throwing TVs out the window, which I felt like doing last night, I have to say, lads. Um, it's back to Paris City again this week, you know. Um, I, we haven't talked to you about Spurs. You, oh, did, you did slip in. Their name was in the cup yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Now, in fairness it. to you, you hadn't seen the team sheet. That is an absolute dis- disgrace, what they did last night. It is just it, the two fingers to the supporters, the people who went up to Sheffield uh, and all of us here around the world and in Ireland and other countries. You, you, you're, and Daniel Levy's been going on in his annual reports uh, his Ukturan report about um, winning trophies is important to win a trophy after 15 years of since we won a League Cup and you have your the world class player in the team on the bench for 65 minutes and the best defender Christian Romero on the bench for the whole game it is it is just you can't make any you can't make any excuses for it I wouldn't mind but it wasn't Sheffield United strongest well, there you go uh, it's, it, it, Spurs were uh, what can you say about a team that goes to Leicester gets humbled uh, then beats Man City and Chelsea at home it doesn't doesn't make any sense um, it just it's, it's it's utterly infuriating, and I'm quite angry about it because um, it was a, it's a missed opportunity with all those lower ranked teams still in the competition. That's the point. Sheffield United go on to draw Blackburn Rovers at home, and we could have got Grimsby. You there's know? Wembley in the last in the last four. Then, like, what a chance for Spurs to win a trophy. So, look, it's uh, Conte. You might as well stay in Italy, to be honest. And Daniel Levy might as well stay in the boardroom, and I might as well go in there and manage it because I could probably do a better job. The Conte thing, I thought, like they've managed to look into a world class manager who's going to make them Champions League team year in year out but it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like the marriage is totally simpatico no um, the marriage is simpatico with Pochettino but that's three and a half years ago now and we've tried to uh, we call them trophy managers 
um, Mourinho and Conte and it hasn't worked out for both I think the recruitment to the club has been poor for quite a long time um, and the thing about Conte is Conte's never really delivered in a Champions League setting and maybe Conte uh, maybe it's a case folks with managers that you have to keep on evolving very very quickly now in the game if it's Pep or if it's, if it's Guardiola or if it's Ten Hag or, or these like Ten Hag apparently did an interview at Spurs and didn't go that well for him so uh, maybe you, you become yesterday's man much quicker than you would have been in the Ferguson years, for example. I'd love to hear about that Ten Hag interview because the, mm. the stories going on about the Man United interview are he absolutely nailed it from the start. Yeah. And maybe he needed to go through the, the process of failure with that Spurs interview to get the, the Man United one fixed. But anything else, JD? Well, it's the Man United. They've won 18 of the last 22 games, Shane. You know, 18 that like that is a seriously impressive. Not bad, is it? It is impressive. Difficult run. to sustain. That's the yeah. one thing is that like they're, they've had their mad run where yeah. everything has gone. And Arsenal are back on a run now. So like if you're an Arsenal fan, you must be thinking, look, we've got a real chance here doing this thing. Right. Does that make you feel sick, John, as a Spurs fan? I think being a Spurs fan alone makes you feel sick without even worrying about what's going on with the, the red side. And uh, I suppose we, we've gone through a pain of Arsenal winning titles in the past. So look, what's another one for them? That's this week's Virtual Insanity. You have entered Power Drive. More, of course, from John on Saturday on Off the Ball on News Talk. Uh, Kenny Cunningham here on last night's show, talking Casemiro with Joe up next. Vinnie Perth in studio. I think there's a bit of a like you know illusion about him, uh, Casemiro. Obviously, what's a huge amount of a play like everybody else. And I've never quite bought into these. He's been kind of tagged, isn't he? We, all, we always pigeonhole players in the modern game, particularly in midfield, don't we? All defensive minded, is number six, tacking number eight, or, or whatever. Um, and Casemiro is almost a given in terms of he's been that kind of quarterback defensive linchpin, that number six behind Cruz and Modric. He's kind of the defensive linchpin. Yeah. And I kind of buy that to a, to a point. But I've always felt his game, he was a more all-rounded midfielder than people gave him credit for. Maybe never saw a huge amount of that at Real Madrid because he didn't have to in terms of their kind of setup. But I always felt he was comfortable getting into forward areas of the pitch and had had a pass, you know, had that kind of clever little pass and even finishing shots from distance and arriving in the box always showed enough to suggest that Actually, there might be more to his game. I think we've seen that since oh. he's been at United. When he stepped forward, kind of out of that midfield pocket into advanced areas, Joe, he's comfortable. Yeah, that's uh, praise for Casemiro from Kenny Cunningham on last night's show. Uh, Vinny, Vinny Perth is with us. Vinny, good morning to you. Morning. How are we doing? Um, good. We, we've been getting a lot of grief from our uh, viewers and listeners for not doing enough on the League of Ireland and no better time to right, do a proper deep dive on this. It's Rovers versus Derry, right? We kind of expected this to be, you know, top of the table already, six points, both teams on a run, but that's not the case. No, it's been a real interesting start and a start for a difficult start for a lot of teams because of, um, um, I suppose, the huge influx of players from outside of the league. So it's taken people a little while to get going. This has been probably the first pre-season I've seen where teams have really struggled to find rhythm for, for different reasons. And I look at, actually, Sligo signed 10 players the last time I checked and seven of them were from outside of the league so that's a fr- that's like 70% and John Mann came back from St Johnson but he was a Sligo player and I think Dundalk all of their signings have been from outside the league so it's taken teams a little bit of time to get up to rhythm and then uh, when we look at the big game Shamrock Rovers in Derry um, it's been I was at the Derry Pats game uh, Derry were again hadn't found 
the rhythm spectacularly but uh, Ollie O'Neill play- came in from Fulham on loan late he played Patrick McLenny was, was sort of injured Michael Duffy was injured so we're it's typical start to season stuff, but what's happened at Shamrock Rovers been really interesting. They won nil up in the first game. Uh, Pico Lopez sent off. Won uh, nil up against Rotherham. I was at that one. Probably should have been clear. And then the two centre halves got sent off. So that's really changed the the sort of narrative around this game this weekend uh, because Rovers play ex- uh, same way for the last five years. Back three, almost a, a two wing backs and a box in midfield. They're without three or centre halves. Sean Horse seems to be injured, so you, what you need did he that do? For your back three, yeah, yeah. So it's that's fascinating, and I'm sure uh, Derry will be sort of trying to work out, trying to looking for bits of information and of, of what Rovers are going to do the weekend. So that will be fascinating to see how that pans out. More red cards than points. Yeah, um, it's been interesting um, because they've been. Uh, yeah, they've been a little bit unlucky. You know, some people have asked me, "Oh, have they got a discipline?" No, it's if this was French rugby team, we'd be like, "Ah, oh, yeah." But it's it it's just a coincidence. Yeah, it is because um, look, I think Lee Grace's tackle against Rotter when he's already got a yellow card is probably where his man just say to him, "You can't make that ta- tackle." Dan Cleary's a little bit unlucky, and Pico Lopez is unlucky the week before. It's just, I think. Rovers keep 10 men or 11 men on the pitch in both games I think they win both of them they didn't so it Is makes it for an interesting bang of early season refereeing as well where stuff that maybe a little bit later in the season you get away with and they're like uh, they were going to establish precedent here so that we can uh, I, I think the only yellow card is, pro- as I said Dan Cleary's first yellow card for time wasting was a bit, bit strange but no I, I okay. think I think look I think it, um, they were second yellows and that's what happens Um Shamrock Rovers dropping points early in the season is good for the league. That's my contention yeah. here. Because like, we expect them to go on a run at some point. They've got the best squad. There will be a distraction in Europe, however long that lasts. But we would expect them to still be ahead of everybody else, given where the club's evolution is. Is that fair? Yeah, I think, I think they're, they're very clearly, in terms of squad-wise, ahead of everybody else. I think people are expecting a title race with them and Derry, in particular. Um and and Derry have still a little bit to prove as well to be in a, in a title race. Like I think um, when you look at most leagues, it's I feel it's one between the ten and five games to go in the seasons when it's really when uh, the squeaky bum time kicks in. That's really the key to it. Sometimes it goes really deep. And last season Rovers had, had lost five games and drawn a lot more. So. In context, for for the few years previously that, like Dundalk winning leagues or Cork winning leagues, you might get away with two, three, not five. So um, they need to be put under a little bit of pressure to test how good they are. They that we all think they are. Gap early in the season last year, and they just kind of kept everybody at arm's length. So yeah. those those defeats were never it never felt like ooh ooh now we're going to see something. Yeah, and that's why we need a team to push them to, and, and great teams need to be pushed. I feel, I feel this is a great Rovers team. I, I would love them to be pushed, and it looks like Derry are the ones who are going to take the challenge to them, and um, we, we'll see. Like, but as I said, um, if you're Derry, what's your mindset heading into this game? Is it like try and crush Rovers and get a bit of a lead on them and build that up, or yeah, is it well, like actually, you know what, it's going to early in the season, it doesn't really matter. Well, Rory Higgins has been involved with Dundalk for a while, and we've had some great nights up in Tallaght Stadium. Um, and where where we had that success, probably wide areas. Remember Sean Gannon scoring from fullback, and for example, and uh, they will know that they will know how they will have a way of beating Shamrock Rovers. Derry um, 
we'll test we'll test them. They've got Will Patching, Patrick McElhenney, hopefully Michael Duffy is back. But they've got really players of one leagues, players of one uh, big things. So they want they want to have a fear there. I would say Rovers will feel on paper a little bit weaker this weekend. And what a, after winning the the Presidents Cup, people will make out that's a friendly. But that's that's when you're involved in teams. Um, I remember when we beat Cork in the Presidents Cup in nineteen. It was a real momentum builder for us, and it knocked them back for six. So I think if they were to win in Tala on Friday after the Presidents Cup, I think that's setting a real statement uh, of intent. Declan Devine will be fairly happy with how things have gone for Bowes so far. Like can can they sustain a challenge? I'm not saying they're necessarily going to win the title, but so far, so good. Yeah, again, um, it's that word momentum uh, people in sport use, and I think they've got a big weekend. Jerry, Jerry loves that word. Yeah, uh, I know, I've heard them, but <laughs> um, it's it's one of them, like... I believe in confidence, for, yeah. for the record. Right? It, it, the we can have a play in words, but yeah. momentum, confidence, but whatever it is. I think the difference with, with, with balls, and I would have spoken to Richie here, uh, a couple of weeks ago where we felt he'd have a really good start is there was a lot of noise around Bowles in terms of new manager middle of last season but they're a very structured club they're, um, they they have their business done early in a lot of the cases uh, that's different to other League of Ireland clubs appointment of Pat Fenlon I think is huge as well to help Declan Devine mm. I think you need that in the modern game in terms of what, what goes on now in clubs and so many different facets to it but uh, balls, balls have added intensity into their play. They've added Adam McDonald, Buckley's come into it. Jordan Flores is a, a scorer of great goals, and then you have the whole Daily Mount factor and balls factor, where um, huge crowd, uh, big games, and again they beat Dundalk today two one, and that's the point about you look at Dundalk's players that have come in. None of them, a lot of them players playing in League One, League Two, fringe players haven't probably experienced it a game like that of that intensity and that's where balls have stolen the march on people and they've got um, they've got shells on Friday that's a that's a big game it's a big game for Duffer mm-hmm. you could do it a, a, a win and um, then they've got a home game against Drott on, on Monday so if they were to win both games this weekend they'll set me off to a really good start but they're probably short of winning the league title but I don't think they'd be stuck if they're there thereabouts come the next transfer window to put their hand in the pocket and improve the team I think they'll push for a European spot now, and they'll they'll be the ones that will chase uh, Pats and Pats and Bowls will probably chase Derry and, and Rovers into them sort of top four positions. Um, that is a big game field to it. Like eight hundred and fifty Bowls away tickets, I think sold out in in no time, which is no surprise given the Bowls support in recent years. But you're having some big game fields very early in the season, which is great. Yeah, it is. Like it's. It, I heard you speaking about uh, chanting and different things the other day. Like. Uh, I was at Bristol City last Saturday and it's it's flat. I was at um, Derry and Pats in the first game of the season, sat beside the Derry fans. And I'm telling you guys, it is brilliant and it has captured the imagination of a lot of the public. Not not everybody, we don't need everybody. But uh, when you hear the Derry fans sing The Town I Love, honestly, I don't even know the words when I joined in. Chills, it is yeah, it yeah. is like it is brilliant stuff. People have to experience this to to realise how good it is. Because there's a there's a local and a community feel to it, and there's a there's a bit of realism to it as well. And it's not again. I go back to I watched Everton and Chelsea, and I stood in the Gladys Street end, and um, it was first game of the season in the Premiership, so it wasn't like Everton are you know now they're everybody's bad mood around the club. 
and I'll tell you I enjoyed Derry and Pats more I understand I was watching world class players in the, in the premiership game and I'm, I'm not trying to compare both and um, I'm sure your YouTube listeners will, will probably have a go off me for that but I mean for experience wise uh, Richmond Park was better than than Goodison honestly and Goodison is a brilliant stadium generally I live very close to Talca and uh, anytime there's a game on you can tell like uh, the sound carries yeah. and it carries in a way that it doesn't really from Croker with Croker when there's a big score there's like a surge of noise and obviously they're very close to each other but there is this kind of constant burble we're like kind of in the back garden listening to this going, this is you know it's, yeah. it's drawing people in the locality in with the, the sounds now the team needs to yeah, yeah. Do you know Shane's point about there's a big game feel off this there's, there's not a big game feel at the end of the season if the teams aren't doing well or if there isn't something to fight for. So um, Shelburne could find themselves in the back foot in a relegation battle. It's not a relegation battle, right? They'll be grand. But um, Duffer needs to start seeing some results. Yeah, I think they've won... I think I've seen a statistic like 5 and 22 or something like that. Like So it's it's not been brilliant. Duffer's, Duffer's challenge has definitely been the resources of Shells aren't as good as the other Dublin clubs so to sign those those type of players is really difficult um, he got he got blood out of a stone to a point last year in terms of what he'd done I think right. he overachieved I think he was he, he probably won't admit that because he wanted the team to push on and all of these things but I thought I thought at one stage I was I was debating in my head whether he was manager of the year that's how good he'd done at stages okay, last year okay. I think that, that's, that's fair interesting to, to hear because like, yeah. um, a lot of people will just look at the results and assume that the the relative resources are fairly similar. I guess that's the whole point about Shell's looking for investment because that's the thing that's going to allow them to kick on to the next level. Yeah, and and I don't want to be disrespectful to the players there, but he's got a he's got some players there that he needed to get them to another level. And whether they like it or not, they were getting to that level because of Damien and Joey O'Brien and what they done on the training ground and the professionalism and 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 the drive in the club. And he's got players to another level. Some of those players probably could have been not classed as first division players but really good first division players doing really well for them and so they, they've improved and they've they've kicked on and um, I'd like to see Duffer get a bit of investment and a bit of backing from the club I know it's difficult for them but I'd love to see him with some better League of Ireland players and to test them to see can he take that club to the next level OK so you're a believer in the, the Duffer revolution then well you've got to win games as well and he'd be he, like he knows football better than anybody he's seen people come and go in clubs he's got to win games as well and um, um, they could do with a big win. There's there's a bit of rivalry with Duffer and a couple of the Dublin clubs, and he's he's not afraid to, which is brilliant. We want to see passion from our managers. It's, well, it's total it's, box office. Yeah, and why not? It's great for the league. Yeah, um, yeah, big one for uh, big one for the dock. Like there's all the talk around the the whole city links and the the takeover uh, rumours, but is it Pat's at home in yeah. Royal Park tomorrow night? Like that that again is a big game. Given one point from two is not. Not an ideal start for the dock. Yeah, if Jared if Jer just doesn't listen for a second, it's about momentum, right? For teams, <laughs> right? So if you, look, if you look at Pats, okay, they started the season, they drew drew at Derry and they won the other day. Not being overly convincing, both again, they're searching, they've played back three, back four. Mm. But going up to Oriel Park would be huge for them, seven points in the first three games. And then the flip side of that, if Dundalk were to get a win, um, again, they can. it's something to build on. So it's a really big game for both clubs um, because Pats are perceived to have a, had a good start so if Dundalk beat them on Friday they're both on four points so yeah. it's like yeah. that's it, there's a big feel to these games already in the season and sometimes what happens in League of Ireland uh, to explain to you uh, Shane is that 
you get huge momentum the first half of the season because it's that type of league where you can be three, four, six, two, three wins away from being in a European spot. The crowds will sort of tail off a little bit towards the end because you've nothing to play for yeah. a little bit. But um, so it's important for clubs to build on it and a good early start is huge for them and I think if it's Pats a big game for them if their fans by winning this game that they're going to be in touching distance of a title challenge then uh, Inchcore will be full week in week out but if they were to lose this uh, five weeks in then it's harder for them to rally the yeah. troops and make Inchcore a fortress and that has this knock on impact yeah and the only thing I'll say to you is Inchicore, whatever whatever Pats have done Inchicore has been rocking for a while to be fair okay. you know so the, but the example is uh, Cork for example uh, six seven thousand it's a brilliant place to go to it's it's great right it's really hostile it's brilliant you really enjoy it as an opposition but if Cork on a struggle now uh, this season you might only find there's one and a half thousand there two thousand second half of the season and it's 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 more difficult for them Needless to say, the teams that do well at the start of a season are the teams that find a settled squad. And I know you've been touching on that with, with writing this week about, about Dundalk. Like, early in the season, you need to have you need to know you're starting 11 fairly quickly. Stephen O'Donnell, that, that's a major issue for them at the moment if they can't settle on a team. Yeah, St- St- Stephen's an outstanding coach, but he needs a hand. I mean, signing three or four players after the season starts is not helpful. Mm. Um, for whatever reason, wh- whoever's fault that is, whether wh- whatever that is. And you can tell they're not they're not necessarily as, as number one targets because you wouldn't have left it so like they're relying on the UK market for people who haven't got loan deals probably or fall no favour at clubs um, so it's not ideal and it's not what they want and it, it will affect the team Dundalk deserve a little bit better they deserve to be in a better place and um, they need whether that's whether whether that's the current owners putting their hands in the pocket or they need investment because uh, for Ligavorn to grow we need we need some real strength and depth and Dundalk are one of them clubs and and to touch on it briefly you look at the first division Waterford and Galway for example are really if we sometimes you to, I'm not suggesting this and I go against what people believe in but League of Ireland sometimes need to manipulate the league to make it a little bit better both of them clubs should be Premier Division clubs it would help us usually as in extend to 12, 12 teams, teams. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they they did do it, Andy, uh, before where they'd done it on criterias and different things, but we could probably do with them two clubs. Again, uh, Full House in, in Waterford, RSE, you'd expect, got always brilliant ground, get good crowds when they're going well, so we could probably do with adding them two teams in a little bit and um, hopefully... I hope heard, them get promoted. I haven't heard anybody else say that so far. Is that a... Is it, a, is it doing the rounds? Is this... Well, ideally what people would prefer is the likes of uh, maybe someone like UCD to go back down to the first division and Galway and Waterford replace someone else. That's that's ideally what people want to happen. Um, that's a little bit disingenuous on, on UCD because the amount of players they develop is frightening. I mean, they, is, are we not really lucky that UCD are in the situation that they're in, that they can play and be competitive as competitive as they are in the Premier Division. Yeah, it's a lazy comment people make about UCD. If you go back to the players that have been developed by UCD, it is far and away probably the best club for development players in the last 20, Mm. 30 years. 
you think of the, the great Theo Dunn just recently passed away but so many good players have been developed at that club and developed in the right way with an education well, that I was gonna say, it like, is huge you know huge. the whole thing about uh, football is that it doesn't care about the footballers it just uses the players up rings them dry well, and then casts them aside yeah, that's not UCD's way like, we've uh, managed people in Dundalk from, that came through the UCD way like someone like Dave McMillan and he was a qualified architect when he arrives with you but he's a different perspective then on the game and it's he, he's more uh, in tune with what's happening in life he, he's, he's easier takes on information and he's got a better understanding of what's needed to do in life and he always has that in the background Robbie Benson another example of it they're, they're brilliant people to have in your club because it rubs off on them um, you, you'd often hear Robbie speaking to people about whether it was politics whether it was about investments whether it was about what you're going to do in a dressing room and that's sort of having people like that around yeah. the other footballers who've come the other way where it's just football 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 the hell with everything else and it's a good balance and uh, UCD should never be the, what they bring to League of Rome football should never be undervalued Is there any possibility of there being a 12 team division next year is this like I don't think the Premier Clubs would agree w- to w- would agree to and that's the problem and I don't think they would uh, it's just that there is a huge because the, uh, self-protection if you think about it there's 10 teams in the Premier Division 4 will end up inevitably in Europe that's 40% chance so the top clubs will, will self-preserve uh, uh, themselves and it's about it just happens to be this is a really strong force division you've got Finn Harps um, you've got Bray um, obviously the top uh, Galway and Waterford expect to be the top 2 but it's just it's about I suppose historically we didn't have enough teams that have a good structure around them we're starting to get our act together now so there is an argument for a 12 team league should be on the way certainly uh, worth talking about for sure um, just to, to, to go back to the point that we were making at the very start this is um, it is the two best teams in the country really Derry against Rovers um, that's what we expect to happen uh, is there a possibility that Stephen Bradley revisits his entire core philosophical view on football and doesn't play three at the back this weekend I can't wait to find out that's the key to it because that's why Stephen Kenny changed from I'm a forward back man yeah. generally I know there was a few examples in history that you were able to cipher us um, the away game in Europe did you go three at the back no 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 they well his first ever league one game was three at the back but no um, look Maybe it, it depends on Sean Hord, say. If Sean Hord's available, one centre half, he could play Sean Gannon. Maybe Gary O'Neill has played centre half of midfielder. Um, but they do talk a lot about our, our structure, our way of doing things, our, our, our belief in different things. I would, I'm fascinated to see. I don't know. Um, I don't live too far from the training ground. I'm tempted to go in and look at the bushes and, and have a little look uh, this week. You but need, You need a drone. Yeah, a drone. Um, but, Vinny Bielsa. Yeah. Uh, um, it will. This honestly, yeah, it's fascinating. This it will be fascinating to see the starting eleven and the shape of them. If you think about, it, if you play for four or five years of a of, of a back three box midfield, and all of a sudden turn up with a back four, they never even do it in sort of uh, league cup games over the years or whatever. Uh, they normally bring in the kids and play that same way. So it will be fascinating to see. Are they, are they good enough to do it? Yeah, they are. They're good enough to do it. With a back four, and look, it's been successful. It hasn't. It hasn't always won over the neutrals in terms of yeah. the the quality 
uh, or the enjoyment maybe the quality has been there but it's like um, the easing on the eye kind of thing and I don't know maybe it's going to eventually well, lead to European success right so I've a Dundalk cap on when I say this right so this this has a health warning to it but I always I've equated it for, for sort of the, the neutral listener is that when you compare Liverpool and Man City okay uh, they're two different styles of play Liverpool Trent Alexander, etc., fullbacks. That was the Dundalk way. Speed, power, Massey cross, and Gannon scoring at the back post. You could see that happening. No problem. I, uh, that's my way. That's the way I love playing football. I think that's you know high intensity. Rovers a bit more Man City. It's a bit more pass, pass, pass. Wait for someone to make a little error. Slip someone in. And they don't have the same intensity in attack, I would say. Both are brilliant styles. It's about what you believe in. If you offered me a season ticket... For Liverpool, I'd take that over Man City because I think there's more enjoyment. There's more likely to be a 3 2, a late goal here and there. But it doesn't mean the, the Man City or the Shamrock Rovers way isn't effective because it, it, it's working clearly and um, it's, it's about what your beliefs is and what you like in football. It's also a little bit about what the ceiling for it is and whether or not the ceiling for the Liverpool way is to win the Champions League and the ceiling for the Manchester City way is not to win the Champions League. We shall see. Yes. And, and the, the challenge, I would say, for, for Rovers is, I think in Europe sometimes, um, to go and win games, that next stage, sometimes you need a little bit of pace in Europe where you get in behind somebody and make something happen. A lot of the European clubs will be okay, content with you having the ball, and they'll wait to, to counterattack you. Yeah, there was, um, there was somebody recently was making the point about um, was it Harry? Uh, was it Potter and his style of play that uh, they didn't have the vast majority of possession at uh, Swansea and Brighton, and so it was kind of a bit weird for him to embrace that style when actually you need to be fully in control, and that's why they were never performing at the level they should have been they, so the XG at Chelsea is below where it should be yeah. but it was at Brighton as well Yes, is that a coincidence? I no, don't know that's the style of management well, do you know what I yeah. mean it's like uh, so he's just had bad luck and the bad luck follows him around or else the, the stats aren't actually but if you if you compare the new manager at Brighton in terms of that very slight tactical change won't go into it now but they play two number sixes and they play about ten yards apart from each other Okay, and what's the idea behind that they, they go side to side they're not afraid but the idea is to give a bit more freedom to the front four and Brighton have become a little bit more exciting since yeah. since he's, the new guy's taken over. And it is about that little small tactical change uh, in people's mindset. It's about what you like, what your preference is. Who knows what's right or wrong? Scoring more goals than you're supposed to is good. Well, if they score four, I'll score five. Well, that's my mindset, but that's not everyone's. They think well, there's times you won't score five. But even the Potter thing of like not, I don't know. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the XG is not where that they've underperformed their XG over such a now sustained period at two separate clubs. Um, one last thing, we were talking about uh, Evan Ferguson has to start, right? Uh, okay. Do I think he'll start? It's different. It depends on the next, next, like the next little while. I, I was only thinking about this last night, right? Um, I'll answer this in a long-winded way for you. Okay, go like on. Gavin Bazuna didn't play last night, and he hasn't been that good. I hope he stays in, gets back into the Southampton team. Seamus Coleman, bit of a mare last night, taken off, but has been in really good form. Matt Doherty hasn't played. You, Alan Brown is playing right wing back for Preston on the left who are we going to play is it going to be Doherty you look at our centre halves Collins is not playing O'Shea is Omar Bamadele's lost his position um, 
Uh, who else? Egan Egan. E- Egan didn't play yesterday, but generally plays. Yeah. I don't. He must have been injured. I think he's suspended. This our, paper, yeah, so. our, our midfield three. You would imagine Josh Cullen playing week week out. Um, Knight is now back in the derby team in midfield, which is good. Central midfield. Malumbi's more or less playing. He scored, and then I, th- I think he picked up an injury, but he's more or less playing. You look at. Evan Ferguson, Adam Oida is again playing, and he's very strong for him. I think they, so I think it's between Adam Oida who starts him and and, and Ferguson, and then it's probably going to be Charles um, like Benny or or no Obafemi uh, uh, starting for Burnley this week. So we're the next few weeks crucial that like. Collins gets game times. Somebody, uh, the, the lads in midfield get game time. Jeff Hendricks in and out, of, sort of does play for Reading, but being in and out a little bit. So I think at the moment, momentum's with Ferguson should start. I would start him, but that's different. That's personal. But Adam Ada may start the game because um, I think the staff really like what he brings to the team. Could he play with Ferguson, Ada and Ferguson? No, I don't think we we can play. But they can play together, of course, but I don't think we play both. We'll only have one, and it's probably of a family off playing behind, one, play, right. playing behind, and and you know the Jason Knight, what Jamie McGrath done away in Portugal, that sort of midfielder who'll do a little bit of both, and that right. will be as as attack minded, I think, as we'll be. Okay, throw so Gavin Houlihan in against France, surely. Yeah, no, it was brilliant, <laughs> and if you think Gavin played with Cork, and then it, then Cork obviously went through a bad spell, ended up at Waterford. Uh, Galway in between I think he's a Galway lad if I'm not mistaken and then maybe um, Kenny well he started off like Kenny I don't know yeah. if he's, well, he's right and then went to Hartlepool had a good you know league two scored 20 goals good few penalties and now brilliant night for him brilliant night for again another League of Ireland player going to for the UK and um, what a horrendous result for Southampton I'll ah, tell yeah. you what but it's it's great for Bazunu. <laughs> it's 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 great for him. McCarthy did do okay, Jay. That's the only problem in okay. goal. Made a couple right. of good saves, but I hope he gets back into the team. But uh, brilliant night, great great player, uh, really good league one player. Won a league with Cork, and um, it's really good to see one of our own doing something on it. What FA Cup is still now mm. or becoming a world stage again, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And for those teams, and like um, they've made that level. Uh, I think they've beaten five teams from above them already. Um, first team ever in, in history to do that so Vinny enjoy the games this weekend thanks a million yeah, I look forward to it um, and the odd time uh, listen go to sh- go to Talker Park as opposed to listen to the back garden you know tickets <laughs> tickets hard to get I, I want to bring the kids that's the, the bit that we're just working up to I have to bribe them so <laughs> it's uh, 18 minutes past 9 this morning OTBAM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back neon night edition available now uh, right Rugby Daily is in your OTB podcast network it brings you everything you need to know about rugby it's all in partnership with Deliveroo with some great bundles and deals open the app make your choice and watch your rider come to you Deliveroo food we get it um, on the podcast network you can get Wednesday Night Rugby Joe's chat with Rashida Adelecki which we'll bring you in a couple of minutes and the Football Daily with Phil Egan as well up next, Fergus Dowd and Carol Ann Bridgman on the film 406 Days, The Debenhams Picket Line. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Right, so this weekend the uh, Dublin International Film Festival is on. There's loads of great stuff. I would wholeheartedly recommend trying to get tickets for Pray for Our Sinners. But one of the other films that we wanted to talk about is about the Debenhams strike. It's called 406 Days, The Debenhams Picket Line. And I'm delighted to say filmmaker Fergus Dowd is with us. We also have with us Carol Ann Bridgerman, who is uh, in the film. Fergus, good morning to you first. How are you? How's it going? Yeah, pretty good. No problem, yeah. No worries. So, um, 
Uh, I would have passed this picket line cycling into work uh, in hail, rain and snow over a long period of time and couldn't but have been impressed by the fact that they were there every single day, no matter what. So, um, first off, how, what's your involvement with this? How did you end up making a movie about it? Uh, well, I suppose, uh, just to begin, I'm actually an IT systems analyst by trade, but uh, what happened was, um, like many people, during the pandemic, I was sitting in my kitchen or my front room or upstairs uh, working, and a lot of time on my hands, wasn't wasn't commuting. So, uh, just a chap in England, I worked on the Patrick O'Connell stories, the Irishman who saved FC Barcelona, and um, one of the lads in England asked me would I write a historical piece uh, just for a publication in England. And um, I decided, in my wisdom, to uh, write about a man called Thomas Blackstock. Uh, he died on a football pitch uh, playing for Manchester United uh, in about 1906. Um, he was playing a, a, a reserve team match against St. Helens, uh, went up to head the ball, it was actually in Bank Street, which is the ground before Old Trafford that Manchester United played at. But um, quite innocuous, uh, uh, he fell, collapsed, brought into the dressing room and passed away. And uh, basically, uh, the coroner in Manchester said it was accidental death. Manchester United didn't pay out any insurance. So his family didn't get a penny. And uh, what, it, what it led to was the formation of the Players Football Union, the PFA, uh, which is their headquarters are in Manchester, uh, led by, today led by Gordon Taylor. But... Um, Two players, Charlie Roberts and Billy Meredith, they formed the, the Players' Union uh, from this incident. Uh, Manchester United were known as the outcasts. Uh, the team was actually banned from playing football. And um, I suppose I'd also intertwined a bit of O'Connell in that when he went back to Spain in 1940, um, the, the supporters of Real Betis that had won the league, you know, that had watched him win the league in 1935, this was his second stint at, 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 in Seville at Betis. Uh, they were in a concentration camp 100 yards down the road. So I wanted to intertwine that with a with a modern-day strike, uh, all that stuff. And um, I just happened to come across the Debenham strikers on social media, a lady called Suzanne Sherry. As you say, th- their um, strike began on the 9th of April 2020 when they were sent a generic email and lasted to the 21st of May uh, 2021. But um, she put me in, I just happened to mention to her, look, is there anybody on the strike who lives near Fitzroy Avenue where Patrick O'Connell grew up? And there was a lady called Linda Carroll. I'd never spoken to Linda before. I didn't know her from Adam. Uh, I just gave her a buzz. And um, uh, basically, she was in her 60s. She was a grandmother. I couldn't go down the road two kilometres or five kilometres or whatever it was back then. And um, she was getting up to walk down the road to Henry Street. Uh, to sit on a picket line for six to 12 hours in the middle of a pandemic. She was 62 years of age. Um, but she had this incredible story. Her grandfather was a man called Christopher Duffy. He was shot in the neck on the railway end in Bloody Sunday, 1920. Um, and uh, But he survived and he went on to uh, win two Leinster championships with Dublin. So I basically... I couldn't believe this when I spoke to her and I intertwined her story. It was published. It was published in England. It was pushed by Pogmagall and in Spain as well because it was obviously a Connor League. And I just happened to say to her at the end, um, you know, can I, uh, you know, is anybody documenting your stories? And so before the film, we wrote a book called Tales from the Devon's Picket Line. And um, I suppose what I did was we just took six stories. I mean, uh, there was Linda's story. There was, there was uh, Carol Anne's who, was, who uh, was, was the only picketer to go to the high court um, and also, uh, there was a young lady called Amy Hurrigan. Uh, they received a generic email just completely out of the blue in the middle of the pandemic to tell them their jobs were gone. She was painting the front room of her house with her mother. She just bought a house. Paul Quinn, who's 
uh, a brother had uh, introduced Dolores O'Reilly to the Cranberries. He was sitting on a hut for 406 days. His father was the former Lord Mayor of Limerick. And then, so you had all these different stories. Jane Crow, who's the shop steward at Henry Street, she had ended up in ICU. She'd nearly died from the wear and tear of the strike. So we just put those stories together. And I worked with Sue O'Connell, who had written a book about, she's a relation of Patrick's uh, in Manchester. And um, she had written the book, The Man Who Saved FC Barcelona. So she was used to books. I'd never written a book in my life. You know, I'm used to programming. Um, so uh, we just, we looked at the history of Debenhams. And obviously it went back to before the French Revolution. And also um, the demise of the company. But also what we did was we got videos like from footballers, fans and all that. And so we got them to see if we could speak to them. They did a page each, um, you know, about why they supported the strike. And then we got Suzanne Cherry, who had initially contacted to write about her last um, her last day on the picket sort of to finish the book. But the book did very well. It's all out two print runs. Ollie Campbell launched it in Dublin, the former Irish out half. And... Um, uh, Sean Ogle helped in and Daryl Canada uh, launched it in Cork and Kerry um, and I suppose how the film came about was that um, I w- it was actually Carol Ann after the book she said to me look is there any um, uh, you know the book has done well is there any chance maybe we could do a film we actually laughed about it and um, I got on to Cormac Hardigan who produced the John Giles documentary for RTA and then um, he uh, sort of racked his brains for about 20 minutes and then said, oh, there was a guy called Joe Lee who won the best documentary in 2016 uh, with a film called Fortune's Wheel at the Dublin International Film Festival, which is about a lion tamer in Dublin in the 50s. This lion escapes in Fairview. Oh, yeah. Uh, true story. And um, so basically, um, yeah, we uh, went to Buzzwell's, uh, had a coffee, and uh, a year later, we have a film in the International Film Festival. There you go. And uh, selling, speaking of selling out, two of them, uh, two of the screenings were sold out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're hoping to uh, to uh, follow Mr. Meskel, who was on last week. So mm-hmm. we sold out two screens, and I think the third screen is nearly uh, nearly sold out. But um, yeah, we've had fantastic support from the, I suppose, the, the sport more than like. We had Noel Quinn over in Moyle Park there. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we presented a, a painting of Brother Walford, um, which was donated to raise funds for the film. Um, you know, we've we've had the, the women sign the Bohemians jersey, which is which is quite a funny story. We went up to Dalymount Park and um, we were uh, we, we brought them up to Dalymount because they're standing in a loading bay. It's freezing. It's yeah. awful. No toilet facilities, nothing. And um, we actually met PJ Gallagher up there, and he presented a short to the women. And that short went in Duncan Edwards Museum. Very good. And then a friend of mine from, from Kildare, Brendan Owens, he um, he donated a Celtic jersey which his friend had worn um, at the uh, World Cup 1990. All the matches uh, that was signed by the workers, and that's in the at the Peña Betica, which is the oldest uh, uh, sporters club, Real Betis. Uh, they're just in the bells of the Estadio Benito Villamarín. All right, so that short's over there as well. So um, uh, Car- yeah, it's been fantastic. Caroline, tell us, tell us your where did the idea of a film come from first? What, where? Um, do you know what? Do you know what? It was a case of I mean, the book was fantastic and it chronicled all the stories, but there was so much footage that we had taken throughout the industrial action on each and every picket line. Plus, we'd done conjoint efforts between all 11 stores. So we had done TikToks, we had done videos, we had compilations of a lot of photographs and things that had happened, funny funny stories that um, and funny things that had happened at the picket lines. So there was a it was a, it was a lot. There was a lot involved. So this, the book only told the story of a few workers, whereas the documentary 
in film would tell the story of many of the workers. So it was, I think it was inevitable to carry on from the book to a film. Uh, tell us your story, because you, you just mentioned in passing there that you ended up in the High Court. Um, yes, um, like that, I got involved in the industrial action from the off. Um, I mean, obviously, I lost my job along with nearly a thousand other workers. Um, and as time went on, we staged a sitting um, in Patrick Street in the, the Patrick Street store. There was eight of us, so we done an occupation and. Following from the occupation, they decided that they would take an injunction against me. I'm really sorry. Page. I'm really sorry to interrupt, right? Because <laughs> that's incredible. But I just need to understand exactly what that means, right? So you you get a letter or an email saying, right, Debenhams, no thanks, thanks for all your work, but actually this is now a, a, an administration or a liquidation or whatever the official language was. How do you how do you even get back into the building? Um, well, um, we, we, well, let, let me just hear from Caroline there. Sorry, Fergus. How did you get back into the building? Be, we had to be creative. We found a ladder that was alongside the building that was long enough to reach the, the roof. And there was a window open into the canteen. So we used the ladder to get up onto the roof and in through the window and we occupied the canteen. Wow. <laughs> I can see why a movie was made now, yeah. Whose idea is it to get the ladder as a matter of interest? Like, so something, somebody somewhere is like, I'm not taking this. Well, believe it, or, believe it or not, that story is even funnier because there was a man on a bike that had one of these accordion ladders. And when we put the ladder up against it, it didn't quite reach the top. Oh, no. So it was a case of, oh, God. But one of the girls from Tralee looked down and... It was just fate. It was meant to be. There was a ladder lying across the, the base of the, the building, which was long enough to reach the top. So, yeah, that's what we used. It was fairly incredible on the on the morning. Well, what's it like, Caroline, then going back to the to, to the Ebenhams, to the to the empty buildings for the filming? Um, that must have been quite emotional and, and strange for all of you. It was sad. It was very, very sad. I mean, we we went into the one in Patrick Street first. And I mean, that's a big landmark in Cork City Centre. And it's always been vibrant. It's always been busy. And then when we went in and it was literally just a shell, it was bare, it was empty. You could hear your the echo of your own voice inside there. And it was sad that... Such a monumental building was empty and there was nothing, not, I mean, we always worked in vibrant stores, there was great atmospheres, but it was just dead inside there and it was just so sad and it was just a pity really. What's it like being in court against the might of a, a massive organisation? Daunting. Um Like that is something that I personally wouldn't have expected. Um but it was, I mean, it was a difficult road to even go, take the decision to go up there. And I mean, like that, KPMG are a big God almighty corporation that have, I mean, the power and the means at their disposal, which is something that us as the workers didn't have. And there was always a big fear going up there that, I mean, you get a criminal record that the court costs would be appropriated to yourself. Um, and I mean, like that, I'm just an ordinary worker. 
very last minute, I could have paid court fees. Um, and it was... It was it was certainly enlightening when I went up there because you I think I went up there expecting that my voice would be heard, <clears throat> that I would be the voice of the workers, and unfortunately that's not the way the system works. You don't get much say in the court, and it was it was hard to it was a hard decision to make to go to the court, but it was an even harder feeling after nowhere you didn't get heard the workers voices weren't heard in the court we're just having a little bit of difficulty with your line there caroline so i might go back to you fergus for this one um ultimately this is a story that ends i i, I don't know is it a story that ends well but it, it like it's a heroic story of a bunch primarily of, of women there are some men obviously but who decide that they're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore yeah, I mean, I'd say it's it's ninety five percent women uh, workforce. Um, I mean, I think the sad thing here is, and and how this all worked worked and how it happened really was that, you know, on the in, on the ninth of April two thousand and nineteen, Devon's was restructured in the UK, and what happened was is the the lenders took over the organisation. The lenders were three hedge funds, Barclays Bank and Bank of Ireland, and what they did was they took out a two hundred million floating charge loan, um, and that date is key because. Um, and what they did was basically they they put that loan against um, the the Debenhams, the subsidiaries Debenhams Ireland, uh, the Irish Debenhams, and the Danish Debenhams. Now, in January 30th, 2020, the Danish uh, organisation were released from the loan because there was interest from a German uh, retail company in buying uh, the Danish outfit. Uh, at the same time, Debenhams in Ireland didn't renew any of their trademarks in the Republic of Ireland. They had 36 trademarks. Um, but on the ninth, in Irish company law, um, you cannot um, liquidate a company. You can't. A floating charge doesn't co- is invalid in any liquidation for t- exactly twelve months. So on the 9th of April, twenty twenty, to the day, a year to the day that the floating charge is signed off by the by the Slane Group, that's their name. Um, the Irish side is liquidated. So the debt they had a debt of twenty two million, which isn't a, much of a debt for eleven stores. So the debt goes from 22 million to uh, 300 million. So the company is liquidated. So we believe it was a tactical liquidation, and that the you know the, there's, the government should be looking into these things. Obviously, the Duffy Cat report is still sitting on someone's minister's desk, uh, gathering dust. But I think the sad thing here as well is, as you say, it's women. Um, you know, it's very much a human interest story. The film is told through their eyes and what they had to experience. Um, and, you know, it's completely inhumane conditions. There's no toilet facilities. It's the goodness of the people that live in the areas. You know, they bring them over coffee. They, they say to them, do you want to come over and use our toilets? In Henry Street, there was a guy up the road, a Chinese, and he used to bring them down breakfast on a Sunday morning. They had Chinese for breakfast on a Sunday morning. You know, stories like that. And I think the, the two key things with this film was that the reason why we had to make it so quickly and within a year, one, it was still raw in the people's heads that are involved in the story. And obviously, the, all the shop stewards were, you know, worked on this film in very much consultative roles. But the second thing was that we also had to get into buildings, you know, the film. Um, and I think at this stage, I must know every property management company in Ireland. Um, but lucky enough, Debenhams didn't own the buildings in Ireland. It was uh, Rota Stores that owned the buildings. So we were also able to bring the workers into film. And um, and obviously that was very emotional. But um, as I say, you know, it's um, 
it's very much a, a um, you know, I think on Saturday night at 8 o'clock when people sit down to watch this, there will be sadness, anger, but there will also be pride. And I think they're very much an inspirational yeah. group and they've been fantastic to work with. Caroline, the, 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 like, so we hear there the level of sacrifice. And, and uh, so we had derogations travelling to work and, and it was literally in the middle of the pandemic. You wouldn't see anybody, but you'd see people at the back of the Henry Street store on, on Parnell Street blocking the loading bay. And every, every day you're like, Jesus, that, that, they're still going. It's incredible. But the sacrifice was real. Like you missed your kids first day at school. Yes. I mean, like that, there was massive sacrifices across all the different stores. And I mean, during the pandemic, people lost loved ones. And they were back on the picket the following week. And I mean, like that, they were, no, thankfully, there was very, there was little or no cases of COVID on any of the pickets throughout, which was something incredible because we all maintained our own personal safety and the safety of everyone else around us. But yeah, there was a lot of sacrifices. I mean, like that. Your phone was going constantly when there was a red alert. You drop everything and you go run into your store and um, you could be down there for several hours at a time um, like that. It was just constant. Your phone didn't stop. There was meeting. There was meetings. There was time on that picket. And uh, I mean, we were there rain, hail, snow. We were there coming up to Christmas and it was like it was never going to end. We were never getting the consultation between between the union between KPMG we were just never get, we were never getting a break and like that the personal sacrifices for everyone i mean like you said i missed my child my youngest daughter's first day um attending primary school because of i was in the occupation the day i was up in court was my the anniversary of my fall the my father's death so i mean that was just my story but there was many many more like that that they had immense sacrifices within their own families and their own lives in order to maintain those pickets. I mean, Fergus spoke of Lindo Carl. I mean, Lindo Carl was getting up at five o'clock in the morning every morning and traveling in all weather conditions to get into the picket on Henry Street. And that was the same case in many, many of the work, many, many of the workers. Well, listen, you, you did uh, a, a great piece of work, not just for the people who work at Devon, but for everybody who comes after you. I'm really looking forward to seeing the film. Hopefully there are some tickets left for that third screening. My thanks to Fergus Dowd and to Carol Ann Bridgman. The film is called 406 Days, The Debenhams Picket Line, and it's uh, on the Dublin International Film Festival, and I presume it'll be on our TV screens at some point soon uh, as well. Uh, right, tomorrow's show, Alan Quinlan, Kevin Caban, you had to be there with Nos Chowdhury, a.k.a. Bearded Genius, Firepit, and plenty more besides. Here is uh, Ireland's track star, Rashida Adelecki, in conversation last night with Joe Malloy. Enjoy. I didn't think they could just walk away and not pay us. I, I, I actually get in a shiver now, even thinking about it. My God, that's our job gone. That's 24 years of my life gone. An email just stayed as and from nowhere, ceasing trading in Ireland and the jobs are gone. Like most retailers, Debenhams Irish outlets are closed because of the COVID-19 restrictions, but it now looks likely its 11 stores here will stay like that even after measures are lifted. Today, it's UK... OCB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.